recording. It's live. <clears throat> uh, are you rolling the video too for the deal? One second here. What's your last name, Drew? Schaefer. Schaefer. Spell wrong though. All right, we're recording on the video. <clears throat> Thanks for being with us. Before we get started with our conversation, our attorneys want to get your consent. Today is Wednesday, right? Wednesday, July 12th, 2017. We're talking to Drew Schaefer and Ben Young. Do you understand and acknowledge that our conversation is being recorded today as part of the Hunt for Success media program? And then we can use your name, voice, likeness, along with the recording of what you say today. And any All right, we ready to do this? Let's do it. All right. In three, two, one. We are live. So before I do anything, I'm going to correct a lot of the mistakes I've made and say, please subscribe. Little red button. We need to get to 100. I always say it at the end. We're saying it at the beginning. So subscribe below, please. Hunt for success. Ben, Drew, cheers. Sir, Cody. It only took us four reschedules to make this happen. Ryan. Yeah, absolutely. Ryan, cheers. Down here with my water. Mm-hmm. Uh, We'd like to thank Roger Wendell for letting us use the Wendell Animal Museum of Conservation. It's an amazing location. Mm-hmm. And uh, without his support here, this this room isn't, not, isn't possible. Well, and uh, I think Drew, besides us, is the only hunter that's been on so far, right? Um, uh, Emery. Is oh, Emery, yeah. yeah. Yeah, second. Sorry. Uh, so how are you guys doing? Good. Outstanding. Uh, I've been excited for this for a couple of reasons. One, we're good friends. And uh, uh, drinking and working buddies, and I've learned a lot. This show is obviously called the Hunt for Success, which gives us the opportunity to combine the two things we love the most, which is hunting and fishing, and personal development, business development, success, and gives us time to sit down with people like yourselves and kind of learn from each other and share that with everybody else. And who do we got here today? We got uh, Ben Young and Drew Schaefer. Uh, Ben and Drew. What's cool about Ben and Drew, and I'll let you guys talk about it a little bit, but you both work in the similar, uh, same industry, mm-hmm. um, which is long-term care, mm-hmm. um, uh, which I want to know, did you choose that field because you knew the baby boomers are coming and it was going to blow up and it was going to be a good field to be in, or did you just end up there? Like for us, if you went to a seminar and they said, raise your hands if you plan on being in the mortgage business, nobody would raise their hands, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I, I think that did have a big part in it. Um, I mean, for me personally, my family was involved in the, in the industry, um, and so that was kind of my, my, you know, knowing them and, and their success and, and what it kind of meant to them, I think had a big part in me wanting to be part of the industry, but, but also looking at the baby boomers retiring and, and knowing that it was just going to be a continual growing industry was something that really got me interested in it for sure. Right. I went to <clears throat> I went to school at OSU thinking that I was going to get into healthcare administration of some variety. I ended up volunteering at a nursing home in Corvallis and thinking that that was just going to be kind of a dip my toe into the pool and find out what was going on. And I kind of found like some of the coolest people they were really dedicated to the job that they do, and they come to work every day feeling really inspired by their work, like it's just what drives them. And who doesn't want to be part of that action? So I kind of got swept up into it, and <clears throat> they offered me an AIT, which is an administrator in training, which is part of the state and federal licensing. And I breezed through that, and next thing you know, I was a licensed idiot. 
with a with a bachelor's degree and no well, experience in uh, administrator ATI is that what you called it AIT yeah. AIT mm-hmm. that you're like the you're in charge you're responsible for the whole facility right it's, ultimately it just it moves you immediately to the top and you are like the general manager for like so I did I did this, an AIT program as well with our company and AIT stands for administrator in training. So I mean, I don't know how. I'm guessing Ben's was similar, but we're work. You're typically working under the executive director or, yep. or administrator of that community, and and kind of learning the learning all the ins and outs of the building from that yeah. perspective as kind of the the trainee of the of the director. Yeah. Um, well, you guys look like geniuses. Anybody that got in that industry, kind of is a genius because it's really blowing up, right? Uh, management styles is a big topic right sure and uh i i know ben i've known ben for a long time and i drew and i just met last this last year and uh, uh would you guys agree that you guys have two different management styles uh i don't know ben and i haven't uh ben and i've been really good friends for a number of years now and worked really closely with each other um but uh, we've never had the opportunity to really work hand in hand in the industry together, and I think that's probably what it would take to learn each other's management style. But I would venture to say that, you know, over over the years of working in long-term care, I've probably had the opportunity to work with six or seven different administrators or executive directors in, in assisted living communities, and I don't think any one of them had the same management style. I think they all varied a, a, a little bit differently, but. Um, yeah. You know, so I can't speak to Ben's management style, but, um, you know, I can tell you that f- the way I manage and from being in and out of Ben's buildings that we're both very much uh, on the floor mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. We're, we're not in our offices a ton. And, um, you know, I see that. In ben, you know, th- and there's people refer to that management style as managing with your feet. And I think that uh, from what I've seen in Ben's building, he certainly does that. And, and I, I do that as well. In the conversations we get caught up in, <clears throat> because we get actually it's a lot of time to sit there and talk about work when we do hang out. It's one of the first conversations that come out and how things are going because it's so involved. Like you're just so invested in it. It's really a huge part of your life. Because well, and you to- guys are, are not to interrupt, but you guys are involved in the same community. So I was I was eavesdropping as you guys were eating pizza. Yeah. And I mean, you guys are dealing with the same networking pool, the same community. Yeah. So there's a lot of the similarity there too, right? Right. Yep. And in the time that we talk, I think that um, we both we have similar and different management styles. Everybody's going to be unique in their style just because I think in our industry, it's going to be a lot about your personality and how people appeal to you. Um, it's a feeling industry. There's no question. I'm not just saying this like there's you are working with caregivers. I mean, that think of that really literally. You know, these are people who, who could make the same money uh, slinging hash somewhere. You know, and hash browns or huh? Hash browns or like hash. Well, nowadays it's a lot of different hash, but I think you know. But the hash, yeah, they could be they could be working at Starbucks, they could be doing something, but for um, for reasons uh, specific to that person, they want to they chose uh, an industry that they want to like help people and do that different kind of thing, and so their. their appeal to the job has a lot to do with the culture of the building mm-hmm. where they are. I mean, there are assisted livings and there are senior communities, but they're, and I'm not just plugging this, but like uh, your two centers that you're over really honestly are hands down two of the best in, in town, the two best in town. I had my own family there. 
and it's like um, people buy into Drew. You know what I mean? And that's what will bring him back. And so he and I will show up on different shifts and the things that you say to encourage people and all that kind of stuff. We, we really have a similar style in that, like, we want to encourage the people who are there to do the right thing to just stick around mm -hmm. and to feel validated by that. Uh, there's a huge business side of it, obviously, but 50% or greater is the people side, and that's keeping them around and keeping them motivated to do the job they do because it is a job that requires you to give and give and give, and that's got to come from somewhere. Well, and for the people that don't understand long-term care, <clears throat> is from the from the CNAs to your position. You're right. It takes a certain type of uh, personality because yeah. your your clients or patients or customers, whatever you guys call them, they're probably in one of the worst positions they've been in their whole life. Yeah, Whether it's recovering yeah. from a major surgery or major accident or are at the end of their life, correct? Right. Or yep. having to sell their house and downsize and live in a community where they can get the care they need. Mm -hmm. It's a huge shift. Yeah. Like all of a sudden. These folks that, whether it was a slow process to the hospital or if it was like a traumatic event, they're all of a sudden in the hospital and life's on its ear. And then instead of just going home like you thought you would after the hospital, they're going to a post-acute center. And so they're like, how much longer? And then they're wondering, what's life going to be like after I get out of there? And it all really depends on how, am I, how I'm able to function. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. am I going to be able to get myself off the bed or am I going to have to have somebody else? And that's going to de determine how my life goes on from there. And... The trick of the day is always, for me, not um, not seeing it so to be so routine. Like I see it day in and day out. I see these patients coming in with these deficits, and they get better and they go home. But it is really such a unique event, you know, and like chapter in somebody's life. And like you just can't treat it like business as usual. When they sit in your office, like they are there to kind of go over some details that are going to determine the course of the rest of their life, you know, yeah. which is just taking a right turn, left turn, whatever else. And it's, it's, um, you have to check yourself all the time. You know, there's that saying that, uh, <clears throat> I'm going to butcher it, but carpenter's house is always falling apart. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned, you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to, but you mentioned that you had one of your family members sure. in Drew's facility. Absolutely. And a mom. So, mm -hmm. um, did that change your perspective? I mean, what was that like? Because it's easy to lose perspective, right? Just like uh, Ryan and I both do mortgages. And then it's funny, when I went to go do my own mortgage, I was like, uh, how do I qualify? Right. But I qualify people every day. Same. We, we both went through like a refinance at almost the same time. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we talk about this a lot with our, with our team. Uh, you know, every person is a new, unique situation, and you have to treat everybody like red carpet treatment yeah. and you can't you can't take it for granted and like every day is a new day and just like you said like everybody whether they're you know coming into your care facility or they're getting a mortgage like this is brand new to them mm -hmm. and they're trying to figure things out so you know really slowing down and taking the time to make sure that their their needs and wants and concerns and all that it's kind of the same thing yeah. that, that it's all met and that you're not just rushing through it to just get through it. Yeah, right, check the boxes, exactly. So what was it like having your own family member need the services at a long-term care, but having it be at Drew's facility? I think significantly easier for me than it would be for the average person, the fact that I knew how to navigate it and I had a friend in the business. Like, um, I knew his, his center, and so I was really happy about 
I was I was really relieved. I'm gonna say happy. You know, you know, yay. You know, yeah. but like honestly, because the, the, of the, the the terms under which my my mother had to um, be admitted, but like it was a tremendous relief to have somebody that I knew in there. But to see the Drew and his team uh, at work, to say that that sold that more than sold it for me. What um, what it could do for people to, to, to have that extra mile. I mean, there's some folk that, that extra effort and things. And like, like Drew and his team um, gave my mom uh, extra time. They were treating her like she is somebody special. She felt like really relieved and appreciated. It came back on me a lot. You know what I mean? Like, I'm so glad because my son, you know, is in this business and this has happened to be something that I'm going to have to need now. And um, I can imagine what it was like for other folks that didn't have that same kind of in, but to get that same kind of service, how they feel because they're lost, you know? And so I know for a fact that's how they operate. But imagine going to a place where they don't, they have a lot of turnover. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's hard. That's, there's a lot of turnover in our industry. So mm -hmm. there are people coming in and you don't really know what their um, motivation is to be in there, but they come in and then to be kind of moved along through it and rushed through it could be just a really distressing experience. and. Uh, it wasn't like that for me. So what was it like as a son? I just say it's like, I was just really glad to, where I never have that conversation at, like you you guys could talk at a, sit, at a, at a party or at a function. People have bought homes, you know, they, they're all been through this stuff and so there's some sort of relation. When I go to a function, people don't really understand our post-acute care. They know hospital and clinic and that's about it, yeah. you know. So there's not a lot of familiarity with it, but I was really, uh, I've lost that thought, but they're really grateful for just being able to navigate that as well as I did. Do you just to piggyback on there real quick, and so I guess so people that are watching would know, they might be wondering why Ben didn't, Ben's mom didn't live in his community. We we we're in two separate. Uh, Good point. Two separate buildings. So Ben Ben does um, the more uh, he does post acute and skilled nursing. He's a clinical sk clinical skilled nursing facility administrator, yeah. um, and. Uh, and I'm in, an, in the assisted living um, side of things, so uh, he, they do a, a lot of uh, rehab um, uh -huh. clinical stuff where, where we do kind of the more, more long-term assisted living type stuff. So, but, um, but yeah, no, so if you don't mind, I'll speak to, I mean, for me, it was, it was big. Ben was, at that point in time, Ben was... Uh, uh, I, I'm just going to cut in really quick here. Oh, sure. <clears throat> because... What you went through, everybody has to go through twice, but only twice in their life, right? Losing a parent. Typically. Yeah. I guess there could be other situations, but for most people, it's two people. And so, uh, yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there. Is, I mean, you're going through something that it's easy to lose perspective, mm -hmm. but you're going through, you're dealing with people in your communities that are dealing with something, most of them, for the first time. Mm -hmm. I don't know where I was going with that, but I just... Sorry, Actually, yeah. that's true. It's it's Greek to folks, but I'll let you jump in. Let you finish what you were thinking. Oh, I was just saying, um, you know, I think one of the things that um, it was obviously a huge, um, you know, I mean, it was a it was a pleasure for us, obviously, to be able to care for Ben's mom. But it was also it was also a huge, um, you know, reward, I guess, in, in a sense, just in that Ben would choose our community. There's several communities in that that. Uh, are in, in the area that we work with. And, um, you know, and one of the things I think that Ben and I both really do a, a good job of, and one of the things that's really important to us is we don't go to our jobs and treat it like it's just a, a, a nine to five clock in and out job. Yeah. It's really important to us that we both have 
the best reputations in the community. You know, we want to build those. We build that. We work really hard at building those relationships out in the community. Mm-hmm. You know, Ben and I are, are more or less partners um, in a sense because we refer people back and forth to each other. And similar to Ben sending his mom to me, I've I've sent uh, several of my grandparents, mm-hmm. at least two or three of my grandparents or my or my wife's um, family, right? Fa- family to to and referred them to to his community just because of the quality of care and the quality of therapy that they provide there, and it's well known in the community, you know. So it was, um, you know, and that that I think that's one thing from a management style that we have we really do have in common is that we care we care and put a lot of time and, and effort into making sure that we provide the quality care. The word of mouth is really good about our buildings, but we're also out there building those relationships and and um, you know and making because a lot of it, especially I mean, when you come down to caring for someone's life, it comes down to trust. That's the biggest thing, you know. People want to make sure that they entrust in you to <clears throat> to provide that quality care. It's a huge emotional sell. Yeah, and yeah. I, I can tell you, I have two two of my grandparents currently live at one of my buildings. So, yeah. well, <clears throat> my wife's uh, great grandfather was at your facility. Oh yeah, yeah. I think. How do we do? (laughs) (laughs) Pretty pretty good. He He didn't edit. He thinks. He thinks. No, No, very good. Uh, So uh, what's cool about your industry is that you have business development and personal development, right? Mm -hmm. Which Ryan and I are really into. That's the whole reason we have this podcast but there's two totally different aspects that you have. You can relate both of those things to in your industry because it's everything you just talked about, right? Yeah, being right. able to relate to people, being able to hire the right people that are going to serve the patients to the level that you ex- you both expect having gone through it personally. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you're running a business, mm-hmm. right. right? So uh, I've wanted to ask you this, Ben, and don't take this the wrong way. All right. But... It doesn't seem like personal development is something you're interested in, which is okay because not everyone is. We have successful people on here uh-huh. that are in the personal development. But I just wanted to know what, what I mean, is it, is it a priority to you? Is it something you work with or work, work on your personally? Or do you feel like uh, uh, that doesn't motivate you in the right way? Let me, why don't you help me by defining, kind of summarizing what you think personal development is that, that'll help me a little bit maybe that'll help me answer the yeah. question a little bit better and so about five years ago well let me back up even further um, in our industry uh, there's a lot of opportunities to go out and get coaching mm-hmm. go to seminars business development personal okay. development how to time block how to be stay motivated how to do self-affirmations um, how to grow your business, how to relate to your client. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Right. And there's a good percentage of people in our industry, a good percentage of really, really successful people in our industry that don't go to any of those. Right. Okay? And you were, you were one of those. And I was one of them. Uh, uh, our boss was trying to get me to go to this annual one that he was a big believer in. And for three or four years, I said, no, no, no. And then right. he cornered me and said, I really want you to go. So I went, and it opened my eyes to personal development. You know, I, I wasn't going to get rah-rah to get motivated to come back and do more business. Tony Robbins. Yeah. Yeah. But I came back going, man, I have a list of, of 500 things that I'm going to do to Im- implement in my business that I never thought of. And then I started looking at um, what, uh, uh, how am I – uh, doing from a business standpoint and where can I be doing better mm-hmm. and 
holy cow, there, especially now with social media and the internet, there are an infinite a number of resources to go to to get that. And so I came back from the first one, and that enthusiasm lasted about four or five days. We got back on Friday, and uh, we had to make it through the weekend. And then I had my list on Monday, and I worked on a couple things, and the list got buried and went in the drawer. And sure. then I was dormant until the next year. And then I went the second year, and I came back with another list, and I made it about six weeks uh, with that level of enthusiasm. I actually made some pretty big changes in my business. And then I came back the next year, and I got an accountability partner, which um, was just somebody else in my industry, not with our company, where we were going to talk every Friday and mm-hmm. help each other keep that as a focus of knocking these things out. And so um, now we listen to podcasts, read books, go to events all the time. And uh, it's really changed not only my business practices, but also me as a person, I think. Hmm. So there's a very long-winded answer. No, I think that was valid. What's your definition of personal development, right? No, I mean, I think you you hit it on the head um, from the business side. There's always going to be you know, usually at these conferences, usually there's some type of a health person there. Um, I've worked out my whole life, done sports and all that. So that's something that's really important to me. And when I, when I lose focus on that or lose sight of that, like, I think it does spill over into, into your work life and whatnot, you know, not feeling well. And I don't have the motivation to work out. And, and then all of a sudden you're, you know, you're, you're lacking at work or whatever. Um, but I mean, I, I think, it can be more encompassing than that, but just from the business aspect, I mean, he, he pretty much hit yeah. it right on the head. And again, there's people that are uber successful that don't go to those things, don't read books. They just have it yeah. within them, but I don't. And I think in personal development, it's one of those things I think that you can, it's, a, it's twofold or more in the sense that you can apply it to your personal life or you can apply it to, to work as far as the, what, what, you're, what you're working on and trying to develop. Yeah, and they completely, like, mesh together. Right. Like, you know, most of the stuff that you're like, oh, I'm, I'm probably going to implement this into my business. Right. In some way, shape, or form, it, it spills into your personal life as yeah. well. It's hard to pinpoint one aspect that personal development covers because it covers all aspects. It covers um, your relationship with your loved ones, with your spouses, with your friends. Yeah, it covers right. everything. And so it's definitely uh, impact. It's I've definitely improved in both areas because I have had a big focus on it. I think I could probably nutshell in the fact that I have no room for improvement. And, <laughs> and when you when you really realize that, that's when you're like, why spend the $180 for that, mm-hmm. that seminar? Well, and some people go and they don't get anything out of it. <laughs> no. I'm with you. Then. Of course. <laughs> I'll let you. If... <laughs> Here, here's what it's kind of come down to. And that piss is excellence. That piss excellence every morning. <laughs> every morning. And blood. But it's like different story. That's for another podcast. Is that later? So that's a dangerous this thing is to a say dangerous on this. subject. You no. can't say that's for another podcast on this show because uh, we're going to dive in. But into I thought it. this was a podcast. You yeah, can't say that's for another one, though. We can't. Because now we're going to be talking about we'll pissing to, blood. We'll have to talk about that. Yeah, we'll oh. It's like triple stamp and a double stamp. Yeah. You just can't you do can't it. You can't do that. Triple stamp and double stamp. Got you some rules here that I'm really glad to know. So, no. This, this has been the kind of thing, this is, my, uh, my wife is, has taken a, a new career on. So she, she was um, working for Oregon Food Bank for 10 years. She came out of college, did that whole thing, and she was, worked her way up through there into the PR and had become stagnant. And then she had 
taken a, a new course by, a new, a, literally, a new course, education for like, um, what was it? Content strategy. Whew, I better get that right. Content strategy and has been able to leap over into IT. And that has been exciting for her. And so she's reading different things to help um, to expand herself in that area. And that's been really good. I've been doing this since 2001. And the thing that every time I crack a book on, you know, like uh, the leadership styles, there's a lot of different stuff. Uh, the Disneyland thing, you know, the, you know, if, if Disneyland ran your hospital, there's, there are all these different things. And it gets me thinking too much and second guessing my own natural kind of approach to things, which thus far has worked for me. Mm -hmm. Okay. Like I just, I feel pretty comfortable. Not, I don't want to say comfortable, but so I feel comfortable with the results that I've been able to achieve through um, the way that I approach situations. One of the things that I've learned out of just process and just through time is to surround myself with the kind of people that I want to do that job, like experts. Your wife like, you know, had no experience in skilled nursing, but clearly was raw material. Not even raw material. She, she, worked, you know, she worked at a facility. She wasn't completely green. You know what I mean? But you could, clear by, you could see clearly by meeting her and interviewing her that she was talented. And when you can identify talent, I don't want to. I don't want to start to corrupt that instrument. I don't want to start thinking too hard about it and second guessing it. So far, I've been able to make connections and identify talent, and to have other talent educate that talent. Because by the way, I'm not. I'm not always a developer. I'm just a supporter. Mm -hmm. You know, and that has worked for me. And I don't really want to corrupt that too much. I think the thing also is I'm not always 100% sold every day that I wake up that this is that I'm the person to see this building through every day, not until I get there. Mm. And then I start making decisions, and then I start talking to people and hearing what they're doing, and I get inspired by that. It seems like every day I get that, the, the fire gets lit, really. There's a pilot light just going out the door because I, I have a work ethic. You know, I show up, I show up early, I'm ready to work, I've already been on top of things. I have a certain expectation of myself, uh, and I, you know, you know, certain daddy issues will make sure that you, you know, you want people to be um, approving of your, of your performance, you know, so you're, you're emailing early and stuff like that. But when I get there and I start seeing how people are doing and I get in their support, that's when I get the engine running and revving. Well, and as I, long as I got that going, I can't see, I have not yet found a book that has been um, more powerful amplified than that exactly. You, I would love to find it. Don't get me wrong. Well, I, 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 everyone wants to talk. This is great. No. This is good times. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just gonna before you jump in. I just I I, I love how honest you were with that answer because I wanted to ask you that for a long time. Sure. Because uh, being able to find inspiration within your own daily business activities, not everyone, not every industry provides, and not everyone can can do that. So uh, uh, that's awesome. And just hearing what you said, I would say what you said is personal development for people that are listening. Right? Is be able to look for for inspiration. Um, and then the other thing you said, and people really have to be careful, especially people like me that really get into personal development, is you can't apply and believe everything you read. Right. You have to pick pieces out that works for you because you can get led down the wrong path. How many times, this is our eighth episode, have we talked about personal development books that are outdated and laughed at them? Yeah. Like the four-hour work week, mm -hmm. right? And right. so that stuff does, it, it does get proven right or wrong as time goes on. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, it's easy to uh, get too into personal development and then take away the wrong things. Right. Well, and like at the conference that uh, that we go to, um, you know, they tell you like 
attend all the attend all the seminars, listen to all the people. You're going to have a list of 30 things. Uh, scale it down to one to three, and do those really good. Like right. don't try to don't try to do the whole entire thing, because right. um, you're just going to get lost. So, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I think similar to Ben, I'm not. Um, I'm certainly not one. I, I've read my fair share of, of books on, on management styles and leadership. Um, you know, we've had a lot of guest speakers at some of the conferences that, that our company holds. And, and, you know, Ben and I both have been to a lot of WACA conferences. Um, not that those add a whole lot of... Nope. Nothing, I'm not going to say anything. Nothing against... Well, it's anyways. too late now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I know, there's not a lot of takeaway that... The hacks, you know? Yeah, yeah I know. It's not <laughs> nothing negative about them, but there's not a whole lot of... Not a lot of takeaway that we're going to learn from some of those conferences. But we... Um, um, but but I too believe that what I've done is, has worked well for me, and I, I can't say that I've I've gone to a lot of conferences or read a lot of books that I've taken a lot like a whole idea away from saying you know what this is exactly how I'm going to change the way that I manage in my building. You know, one of the things similar to Ben, um, I am the complete opposite of a micromanager. I try to yeah. I try to hire people that are smarter than myself. Please. Um, and and I've succeeded at that. That's not very hard for me to do. But I've, uh, <laughs> but I, you know, but the biggest thing I think that I've learned in my management style is I try to build a really, really good team um, and have trust in that team. Um, you know, and sometimes, you know, I've gone into buildings where I'm I'm the outsider, and um, sometimes it takes a little bit of turnover to and bringing some new people to, to build the team that you need to build. But um, once you get that team beneath you and they really support you, um, you know, it makes your job so much easier. And, I, and I've said it a hundred times, but I, I, and I'm at a point right now in my building and I was at a point when I was running um, my prior building that I feel like I could leave for two months and, and everybody I have in place is gonna completely run my building for me while I'm gone and, and I wouldn't have any, not, not one concern that they wouldn't do that. And to me, that's kind of how I measure my success is, is how, how well have I structured my building to where I can be as uninvolved as I want and mm -hmm. everything's going to run just fine because I have all the right key players in place. Um, where people aren't dependent on where you. Where people aren't dependent on me. Right. And, I, and, I've, and I've, I've hired, inspired, and, and put people in positions where they feel like they have the ability to run their own small business within my building to where they, they can make decisions on behalf of the building that they know I'm going to support. Because people want to throw monkeys on your back all day, right? Right. Well, sure. not not you, yeah. but in management, right? Mm -hmm. right? They want to. They want because it gives them an out, right? Yeah. I gotta say that was well put. Honestly, like you say, hire, inspire, and then everybody run their own small business. Like you find these people that are motivated internally to do their own great job, and all you gotta do is just keep fanning that flame. Right. You know what I mean? To fan that flame, support them. And they, and in our industry, people thrive off of, they don't expect anything in return that they're not already getting from, um, you know, the, the personal reward of, of, of taking care of people and being in an industry where we have great outcomes and kind of a, bar, a larger machine. This is not something that we have to preach. You know, it's like, it's really, it really comes from something internal. And then you can come by and you can just give them a zap, you know, and just say like, outstanding job on this or recognize something like this or just kind of surprise and like on their desk is waiting for something and a four dollar mocha on the on you know on somebody's desk when they come walking in and it will run for a week mm -hmm. you know that kind of stuff like now 
I ask myself, self, you know, it's like, you know, what other industry would I would I want to be in? You know, could I be in something that's I'm in the most highly regulated industry, all right? And it is incredibly punitive. I, rules are one thing. Rules enforced to to, you know, crush your soul, you know, and, and, and make you feel like you've done something wrong every at every turn. Have you been in the mortgage industry? Okay, so yeah. <laughs> but do you have regulators come through and then put posts on the internet that you are causing harm? Well, and, that's the thing. And that's like, if I feel like if after, after an 11 hour day, five days a week, you know, that I'm causing harm, I don't know that I can handle that every single day, but. Well, in, in our industry. But yeah, it's if, true, you guys have rules well, on rules, right? Yeah. If, if <laughs> and they're they're always changing. You know? If not us, because this is our happens, it never never happens in our office. But if someone has a client that's upset, then they're upset and they go up through management or they voice in whatever way. If you guys have a patient's upset, they call the state and then the federal regulators. Federal come in. regulators are in your building within a certain amount of time. Right, and if they if they cite you at a certain intensity, like you know, like um, you know, harm or whatever else. I have to write a plan of correction that goes on the website and then that will mark down my star rating. That can affect my uh, reimbursement. That can bring down the entire energy of my building, you know, and everybody and what they feel like they're really representing and what they're doing. And it's, um, that, that to me, when I think, I ask myself, I'm like, do I want to be in another industry where that is, that's not present? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I don't, I can't, I can't speak for hospitals, but I can tell you they don't seem to be running as hard or as fast as we do. And when you're looking at the hospital, could I do that? The thing is, I look at the, my people and I see what they do and how what motivates them and the kind of energy they put in the thing. And then I feel like, not an obligation, but a, like a certain duty to these people to like continue to support them. I don't want to hand them off to some halfwit. Right. You know? And so that's what keeps me coming back is like this same reason that you come back to your home. You know, a lot of things like this is my family. This is the kind of thing that I have to do. And, um, as long as I got that, I don't want to read a book that's going to have to help me redefine that because so far I'm still going at it. Sure. Yeah. I would say in the own for me, I, every time every time I go to a conference or, or if I do read a book, there's usually one. I usually pick one thing that I really take away from that. Good. You know, and I try to and and I'll try to focus on that and say you know that could really help me I, or I could do a better job in doing that and try to implement implement that in what I do at work or maybe it's a, a leadership team building. Um, type thing, you know, um, you know, and I think that's really important to do, um, and changing up a little bit, but going on to what Ben was saying, you guys were talking about the regulata regulations, you know, one of the biggest struggles too with, with mm. our industry and what we do now is, uh, the internet and, um, you know, nowadays when someone's looking for a loved, looking at a place to send their loved one or their, their, you know, family member, brother or sister to be cared for. They're going online and reading reviews, you know, and it's all that much, you know, and, that, and that's one of the things. I mean, of course, we want to provide quality care and have everybody leaving our, our doors with having positive things to say about us. But it's it. But I mean, I employ it just one just one of my buildings. I employ just under 250 employees. And I think Ben's right there. Next, yeah, about 211. We have about the same amount of employees. Um, you know, and, and employees, obviously, they have the ability to, to do the exact same thing. But I mean, anybody could reach out and write a review online and make it as negative or positive as they want. And, mm -hmm. you know, and honestly, and, and, and going back to liability, I mean, there's a heck of a lot of liability in our industry as well in, in the care that we're providing. And a lot of times, you know, sometimes mistakes happen. Um, you know, with, you know, sometimes we do screw up. Um, Having that relationship with that family member, that long-standing relationship with that family member, 
uh, oftentimes prevents that from from going that that issue from going any further because they know that you truly do care and that you're going to do everything you can in your power to make sure you make it right. Mm -hmm. um, but but the power of the internet is a really scary thing I think, um, particularly in our industry because I can tell you some operators in our industry um, that have literally dedicated pages of that just badmouth the way they do business and how poorly they treat their employees and. Um, and that can that would have a significant impact probably on our employment, uh -huh. um, but also uh, you know our reputation in the community and that sort of thing. So that's that's a really big thing I think that we have to keep an eye on as well. How what's the reputation cycle like in your industry? How long can you recover from a bad some a bad something negative that could affect your industry, your reputation? Okay, um, that's that's actually a really good question. There are if you have a strong reputation. And you say have a bad survey, and that's when that's when the regulators come in, and they. So here's how this whole cycle works: like between nine and twelve, nine and fifteen months, um, a team of regulators will routinely come through and do a full audit of your, of your operation, front to back, top to bottom. Already starting with interviews with the families and observations on the floor, and then they come back if anything flags, and they go to those areas and they deep dive. Already, and then, anyway, so that can be that can be about a seven in my industry about a seven to ten day uh adventure it can be close to five days for we're about five days yeah and they don't tell you when they're coming they like <clears> no, no no they give you they a window or show up well you have a general window because you know when they came last year and they can come three years before or three years three months before or as many sometimes they're late and they're like five months after but you're constantly watching you know and it's a fatigue but um if each team it, usually you'll have one or two members that might have been in your building before but it's never in my experience been the same five people ever and so there's a team dynamic that occurs amongst five people mm. a lot of things even even the same five people on a different day are going to be different in team dynamic you know, imagine throwing together different five people you know two the same and three and three others and are, are they is it like who can find the most violations it kind of depends on that person some yeah. people got a real hard on to go out there and cite that's all they want to do. They just want to cite, cite, cite. That's how they win. I mean, that's what they're finding. Like, if I can find all these things wrong, it's great. It's easy to criticize, you know, I'd have to say, after not having done the work, right? So they can go through and they can cite. But the team dynamic can also, where they can work themselves up. If they're not working out, they're not working well together, if things aren't going well, it can cause a mood amongst the team, and that can really make your survey go one way or the other a few degrees, right? But if that occurs and you, and things just don't go in your way, and you have a bad survey, being pretty much close to the same building you were when you had a good survey, they just found heavier fault or more items or spent more time focusing in on things, and the regulations can be interpreted. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. they're interpreting the regulations to be a certain thing. Getting through this boring subject to a point is that that bad survey goes on your, on your website, right? And if you have harm, it kills your this and all that kind of thing, you can recover from that you have a couple of those and then you find yourself having losing staff and you have a hard time recruiting because people don't you know can't come to work because your star rating which is just like this really really kind of like just really basic five stars it does not boil down to five stars you know you come down to like and you you lose two stars you go to three stars and all of a sudden people aren't choosing you so you have to select it'll be open to more difficult patients patients with with behaviors well yeah, and I want to dive into that. Then that's hard for staff, and staff don't want to work there so much. Then you have a harder, you have more difficulty recruiting good staff. So if you have a lower rating, then you're going to take on patients that have maybe more needs. 
Yeah, fewer right. people are gonna people are gonna go like, oh, people who want to say I'm only gonna go to a five star building, maybe maybe a four star building, are not gonna go to a three star building. So if you happen to for just some significant event had dropped down to a three star building. They're not going to choose you. You are going to want to keep your doors open, so you're going to start uh, accepting patients that are, you know, that are more challenging. You know, that maybe a five-star building and say like, I can keep build, I can keep busy, not accepting this patient with all these behaviors. But I don't think people realize that too when they're selecting uh, a mm -hmm. facility to go to is that your facility is also selecting you based off of your needs and the way that you guys can serve them, right? Yeah. So maybe somebody with a and correct me if I'm wrong, because I know nothing about. No, I think but you're like, right on. Like, so maybe somebody with an addiction problem, right? Or somebody with um, uh, an injury that requires drugs that are more maintenance mm -hmm. specific that require you to have certain staff to deal with those people, right? So you guys can pick and choose who you want to accept as a patient based yeah. off the care you can provide them. Absolutely mm -hmm. right. I sorry, I want to answer you. You'd asked a, a question. I think Ben had answered, but I also I also want to answer it. Um, but I want to make the point. There's, I do not envy Ben in that his, his, the side of his industry is so much more heavily regulated than ours. You know, we have surveyors that come in that unannounced. Typically, they'll come in between 9 and 10 a.m. on a Monday or Tuesday and spend the rest of the week with us. Um, you know, and I can say from experience, Ben and his wife were over having dinner with us one night at 8 o'clock and 8 p.m. at night. Um, and we had just cracked a bottle of wine and he got a call and he was in state survey for his annual state survey at eight o'clock at night. I was so, changing in the bathroom. I had to put my shoes back on. So. Right. So, yeah, so like, get it, casual. It's, it's, a, it's, a little Uber? it's a little different. <laughs> no, um, I didn't even get the wine. <laughs> but, but you had asked the question, how soon can, how soon can your reputation kind of affect? Can that take, cycle, take a, right? Yeah. How soon, yeah. how, how fast can it cycle? You know, and I would say for my industry, I certainly think that it can be just within a matter of a few months. Um, and you know the biggest contributing factor is if you have people going out, if you've got residents going out the door unhappy with care complaints. Mm -hmm. um, typically, before you get to that point, though, it starts with the staff. You know, typically, if you have staff going out the door unhappy and, yeah. and not a good culture in your building, that's typically where it starts. And it doesn't take long for that to fall onto the residents and the quality of care that you're providing. You know, and I th and I don't think you know, and from working with all these different communities in our area, similar to Ben's and in, in, in my communities, um, other assisted living communities. I think the, the hard reality, I think for myself, that I think is for most people, that's an, a very hard and almost impossible thing to bounce back from unless you change. It could take years for the same, in my position, let's say my reputation went to hell it could take me years to bounce back from that reputation within my community or, or several months. But I think if you changed out my position and you brought somebody new in, everybody in the community is now much more open to seeing the change than they would be knowing that you had, you're the person that lost the reputation and still in the same position. I think he, he summarized it really well. That's absolutely true. It comes right back down to the staff. I think that's taken the long road around to saying that if you cannot hold on to staff because things go so difficult, and then they're not really bought into the culture that you're, you're going to have turnover, and then it's a downward, it's a downward slope from there. But you can recover if you hold on to the same team of people and everybody bands together to kind of say like, okay, that's our plan of correction. We're going to hold on to our plan of correction, and we got through, and and you can resurface in in a certain amount of time. I've seen that with one of our, our local folks. It just took a big hit, 
and there's they have a long-standing um, reputation. They're surviving. But it's something that I think we have in, in the size of our buildings, the amount of staff that we have, we have to look at it on even a smaller scale and in, in within our departments. And if you have a department manager that has struggled and, and despite your coaching or whatever the circumstances might be, but has kind of did, um, lost their ability to, to retain and, and rebuild that trust and strength with their team, um, and they're kind of beyond retaining as an employee, you know, a lot, of time you're, a lot of times you're a lot better off kind of cutting your losses mm -hmm. and trying to find the new, the new person that's going to come in, and your staff are going to be much more open to seeing the change now because they had already lo they had lost that trust in that person. And it takes such a long time to rebuild that trust as opposed to bringing in a new face that people feel open now to seeing what the change is going to be. Well, and if they see somebody slacking or not living up to their end of the, uh, of their, end of their, to the bar bargain, then they're going to lose respect for you because mm -hmm. you're not holding them accountable, right? Right. right. Yeah. Why am I working so hard? Right. Yeah. yeah and um, one of your referral partners are the hospitals, right, that are discharging yeah. these patients. They're upstream. Um, and so reputation with them, I would assume, is important too. And one of the reasons I ask this question is because if you are successful enough in business and you're doing enough business, you're going to have bad experiences with your clients at some mm -hmm. point, right? Sure. Absolutely. Even if you're five stars, there's going to be something bad that happens, maybe out, totally outside of your control. Mm -hmm. And in our business, oh, we're... No. There's going to be something bad that happens within your control. <laughs> yeah. That too. You will make a bad call. You will. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. Well, everyone makes it. Yeah. yeah. That will happen. Nobody except Ben is infallible, right? Right. Exactly. No, I just said I was, I had no room for improvement. It's different. <laughs> it's different. That's true. <laughs> By my book, you know. <laughs> I'm kidding. But, right. uh, so for me, if I have, let's say somebody sends me a referral mm. and for some reason that referral goes poorly it's easy to panic and go, I just screwed up. This person's never going to send me any, and it's easy just to abandon it, mm -hmm. right? We're much more transactional, mm -hmm. but it's much easier just to go, oh, they're never going to refer me and, and move on instead of going back and trying to rebuild it. Hey, this is what happened. We're going to fix it. We're five stars. You know our service. And, uh, and so I, I think that that's something that can separate people that continue a good reputation with things that happen mm -hmm. in or out of their control versus the people that go, well, there goes that referral partner. We're never getting anything from them again. Right. 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 Some level of comfort um, comes from the truth in our industry that something bad can happen. We're only, you know, we are, we're constantly exposed. We're only as good as the decision that's being made right now by the CNA on the floor, right this moment. At any time, something could happen. You know, one of his nurses can be making a decision that could cause a major issue just based off their decision. How you react or how you respond to that is going to be the thing that makes a difference. Mm -hmm. So if a medication error causes, if a, if a minor medication error on a fragile person causes a significant change in condition that sends them to the hospital and that sets them back really far, you know, what you do at that point, now the hospital has them now, so they're going to stabilize them and they're going to, you're going to do everything. Reaching out to what you do that at that point is going to make all the difference. Mm -hmm. It is, and I think you guys can appreciate this too. If something yeah. goes wrong, wh how you act as a person at that point, you know, and it's there's 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 no regulation on this one. This is all about how you put yourself into this position at this point. Is reaching out to the family to talk right. to them, 
Just owning it. And yeah. owning it and yeah. talking to them and getting their feedback and getting the temperature there. Absolutely. And, and then listening and not trying to make excuses. Right. Maybe educating them, but if it's the right time, because there's a lot of stuff they may not know. Half of our issues are the fact that families don't know what we're doing because we don't have the time or the ability to, 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 to call them up and tell them all the things that we're doing. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? They just don't know. And so not knowing is the problem. But to reach out and to work with that family and see where that lies and at least to make that effort at the same time, at the exact same time, identifying whether you have a weakness within your, 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 your program and immediately fixing it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's not always firing that person. It's, it could be education all the way across a certain discipline or department, you know, and going that direction and how you react. So when things do fall out from that, when things come to you, people are going to like, then what did you do? Well, I can tell you what I did. I got out of bed at three in the morning, went down to the building and with my director of nursing, and we looked to make sure that everybody else was safe, you know, and that's, and then this is how we did that, and in depth and in detail, right. and they're going to be like, who's going to fault that? An error occurred, you know what I mean? Right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So, but if you're scared and you procrastinate to pick up the phone and make that bad phone call, you're only going to make the situation worse. Right. Yeah. Or, or if you want to try to, if you want to try to make excuses or divert the issue, as opposed to a lot of times, it's so much better to own up to it and be a human being and say, you know what, I'm really sorry. We I'd be mad up. if I was well, you too. Uh, how, yes. we, we really how you, up. Jo- Jocko Willing's book. Yeah. It's literally called Extreme Ownership. Former mm-hmm. Navy SEAL. Okay. We both own copies of the book. I think it would be awesome for you guys to read it it's killer he just literally talks about just it uh, his his motto is own it Mm -hmm. own it with with everything and one of the mistakes in that book is a friendly fire situation in ramadi yeah where you have two navy seals shooting at each other sure and so he he had to go back and own that mistake yeah and he was he was trying to come up with you know every reason as to why it wasn't his fault Mm mm-hmm even if it wasn't his fault, he, he just, he literally sucked it up and he went to these high ranking generals and goes, it's completely my fault. It's completely unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And he goes, I thought I was probably going to lose my job. And it turns out that they were like, oh, now like, we understand why. Yeah. Happened. Cause he yeah. could have blamed it on a, a soldier in a lower rank that miscommunicated something. Right. And same thing with what you just said right. is that both of you is that, uh, I'm sure there are administrators in your industry that in a tough situation roll out their staff, place the blame on somebody else underneath them, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's the easy way out. Yeah, Yeah, it seems like a solution. Just to back up just a hair, you mentioned you were talking a little bit about our referral partners and and that relationship. You know, one of the things, we're a little bit different than Ben um, in in that realm because he can can take a much higher level of care than than assisted living communities can, but... um, you know, every assisted living community structure a little bit differently with their nursing support, mm-hmm. their staffing ratios, what they can and can't provide. You know, we have, we're, we have the benefit of have. I'm, I'm staffed very heavily on nurses. Um, yep. So we have 24-hour licensed nurses around the clock, 365 days a year. And then in addition to that, I've got about five administrative nurses in my in in my building. So, and and I'm blessed in that they've. Um, developed those really good relationships with those discharge planners at the hospital and the social workers at the hospital and have built that trust over the years. Um, But one of the things we have to be really careful about in our industry is there's a fine line of what what level of care we can take 
and be successful with because you don't want to fail and have someone leaving um, with a bad taste in their mouth or going back to the hospital telling them we didn't we weren't successful with the care that we provided but on the other end of it if we're getting a referral from the hospital we also can't cherry pick and only take the easy and only take the easy people that we know we're gonna that we know we're gonna succeed with um, and that's kind of a fine line that we have that that we struggle with and, and are constantly juggling back and forth with our nursing staff is is being able to identify you know what we can and can't provide um, but also trying to maintain that relationship and make sure that we're doing the we're we're doing the hospital a service and taking people when they when they need to get them out the door to our buildings mm-hmm. um, serving a lot so. of masters on that one like you're saying you're serving a lot of masters you like are, yeah like, like you like you your hospitals need you need to, you need to take a cross-section they don't they will never have respect for um, a downstream provider that only takes the easy patients, leaving them with the hardest patients to, to place, mm-hmm. you know? So we will take those harder patients even though we could take an easier patient because that just shows that we, first of all, I think it's good for the staff to be exposed to that. I don't want them to have like just a, a like this Mayberry kind of skilled nursing Pull center. Pull your mic in a little bit. A Mayberry kind of skilled nursing center, you know what I mean? Like you have to have we should be taking some of the tougher patients. We should be keeping our clinical skills sharp. We should be doing stuff. That's the way that I sell it. But the truth of the matter is for a hospital case manager who has ex, you know, these three super easy patients to place and this, and let's just kind of go into it, heavier care patients. When I say heavier, we're talking about a bigger patient. Like, bari- like that. Bari- bariatric. Bariatric. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. And stuff like that. And you say, I have the equipment. I can do that. And you take that patient off. And then you build, then you maintain that relationship. And I think you also have better credit. I mean, really, what kind of place are you going to have if you're only taking the easiest patients? You know, you're not really going to have, you're going to be just soft. And so they're not going to, I think it keeps your clinical skills going. It keeps your relationship going with the hospital. And then they can, they'll be like grateful to you and you're going to be their go-to person. It's a well, They're going to repay situation. that, right? Yes, they They may do. have a difficult case they're going to give you, but you took really good care of them. So they're going to give you some of the easier ones too. Mm-hmm. It's very similar with our referral relationships. Is it really? Very similar. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, if you have a if you have a very unestablished relationship with uh, you know with with a referral partner, you're going to get the junk, like well, it, all day long. <laughs> and here's the definition of junk, right? So let's say I'm I'm approaching a new referral partner, uh, like a real estate office, to refer me business. Sure. Um, well, they may test me out with a manufactured home on 10 acres that also has a Christmas tree farm attached, right? Um, I so can picture it right now. Yeah, actually. that 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 it's a very buyer, hard loan to do. Yeah, yeah. that buyer it deserves that property and deserves the customer service and attention just as much as everybody else. Just like the bariatric patient, mm-hmm. right? But the amount of resources, energy, and time to get that deal done is going to be much more difficult, as opposed to the doctor with thirty percent down buying a million dollar house that's been in the industry and had been in his job for thirty years, right? Right which is a uh, relatively simple transaction. It's not going to take a lot of time and resources. But those referral partners sending us those deals will often, either one, they're not very good, and the only clients they have are the Christmas tree manufacturing home people, (laughs) or they're going to test you out and see how you do. And they're not going to give you all their good stuff and give their bad stuff to somebody else, so you have to do well on both, right? Mm -hmm. So it's very similar. Wow. Which is crazy because they're two totally different industries. Right. But a lot of, a lot of similarity there. Yeah. Absolutely, I can see that parallels. Yeah. Um, so, what do you guys think of the podcast so far? 
Good. I'm having a good time. Yeah. I'm Absolutely. glad you guys made it on. Uh, when I first started talking about this, it's hard, you know, it's, uh, it's that whole fear thing, fear, fear of doing something out of your comfort zone. And so approaching people I respect that are friends with, it's, you definitely have to get over that. Oh, maybe they'll think I'm an idiot for doing something totally crazy. So I appreciate you guys coming on. We're not even close to being done. I just wanted to say that. I thought he was, I thought he was showing us the door. Yeah. We were right. cool. I was like, so, uh, it's getting late. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You should be going home. Are you going to call us a cab? <laughs> uh, don't you have a cell phone? Uber. Call your own cab. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I appreciate it. No, uh, I'm having let's a good totally, time. Can we totally change gears? I mean, we can keep going on this. I think, I think that a lot of people in the, outside of our industry that do like personal development are going to listen to this. And, and I'm taking away a lot from this conversation, as I have with both of you guys. Okay. Can we switch gears? Do you guys want to keep going? I'm ready to do that. We can switch gears if you want. Yeah. One thing before we switch gears, yeah. if you don't mind. No, let's do it. Sorry. One thing I just wanted to add that I was that I just kind of came to mind that I thought was important that I feel like Ben and I um, both kind of do a good job of, and I think every industry is a little bit different in that. And I talked a little bit about building relationships with people in the community, but the other, you know, just a week ago, Ben and I went golfing uh, yeah. with his two closest competitors. Yeah. Um, that was cool. And um, was it for like a fundraiser or something? No, no, no. It's just to have a good time. Fun. And just anything, build, yeah. you know, build those relationships. They're, and they're they're fun, great people. And um, you know, I, I work with all three of them. Um, but it's great that Ben and Ben and the other two, being the closest competitors in town. I mean, they get. I mean, they get along great. Mm-hmm. They share a lot of commonalities. They. You know, I guarantee they pick up the phone and call each other if there's if they've got an issue or a concern or want to know how things are going in each other's buildings. You know, and I think that's really important, and and you can apply that to probably almost almost any business or industry. And I do the same thing. There's a there's a building right down the street from us that is our by far my biggest competitor in town. And um, if I have a if I have a family or a resident that's inquiring to move into his place and leaving potentially leaving my place unhappy, he calls me. Really, and I do the same thing for him, um, and says, "Hey, I just want you to know this person is is looking to move, and they're not ha- you know, and they're and, and they're kind of disgruntled about something, or there's sounds like you could do, you know, you might want to touch base with them and figure out what's going on." And we have that, um, and, you know. And funny thing, I invited him to go golfing next week, um, but it's you know, it's nice, it's really nice having that relationship with him. Um, and, and, and others in the community to where it's, uh, it can be professional and respectful. And I think people really appreciate that. There's always those competitors out there that are gonna be sending you, you know, we get direct mailers to my building that go to all my residents that tell from, the, from you know, some big competitor that's publicly owned and, and um, tells them about all the great specials they're running and all this, that, and the other thing. And they're trying to coax your residents into, into mo- jumping ship and moving from one building to the other. But to have that professional courtesy and be able to pick up the phone with the other top contender in town that and, and that does a really good job um you know it's nice to have that and when people are leaving my building or if people are inquiring to move in but don't move in i'm, I'm happy to tell them these are these are the two places in town that i would recommend looking at if you if you don't choose my place these are the other two places i'd look at because they do a really good job um you know, and I think Ben would do that same thing mm-hmm. for the, the, the other people that we spent time with last week, you know. That's true. In for the long haul mm-hmm. and better serving the community. Um, yeah. I feel good living in a community where, where we have big pillar companies in our community that work well together, that have good ethics. 
Yeah. That has a lot to do with this community, honestly. It's really unique to Clark County. I mean, I come over from Portland where it's a doggy dog. You know, they don't have a certificate of need. Total so cutthroat. Cutthroat. Anybody can build anywhere, skilled nursing or whatever else. And it is. And you can build those relationships some places, but perfectly honest, like this um, this this community is probably more tightly knit. And I'm so sorry. I think I interrupted you. I'm sorry. Uh, no, no. That, right. I think you went right with what I'm saying. Right. And we're lucky to live in it. And it's very similar in every industry, right? You can be mm-hmm. cutthroat and roll people under the bus. and Right. And uh, it comes back. It comes. You may get ahead quickly in the short run by doing that, but it's yeah. going to come back and bite you. It's called mm-hmm. karma. Absolutely, it's called karma. And I think anybody, um, anybody with half the sense is going to probably lose respect for somebody that's over there trying to throw somebody under the bus. The best kind of sales you can do is is look like the guy who's sending somebody to go tour. Like when someone tours me, I'll say, "You should really go check out another place." And here's a couple of places that honestly, I if you if we're not your fit, these are probably these have great reputations, and I would recommend. And those are actually those two cat, those two cats we golf with, and you send them that direction. And I say these are the areas you're going to want to look most closely at. Well, you're pointing out all of a sudden now you're the authority. You know, you're giving yeah. them guidance, and you are kind of like the authority, and you're sending them off, and they're going to want to kind of probably come back. I mean, it has its own technique there as well. And then you are like, take you know the the the, the um, what's the term like the, the countersell and or whatever it is you know where you just try to sell move people along, and then mm-hmm. people are like no 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 I want to come back. You know, and there's a kind of a thing there, but the truth is, people will buy into integrity. They're already in an emotional situation. They're in an emotional cell, and I think that having somebody who's just kind of like a real human being and says something like that is going to have it go a long way. But I mean it. I would never send them some other place. I wouldn't recommend a place that I didn't think was going to be good. So, is there a discrepancy in cost to the consumer among you and your competitors? Uh, not for me so much because it's um, their insurance uh-huh. that, that pays. Yeah, for, for us, there's a significant discrepancy in cost. Um, we don't, um, you know, there's several communities in our area that, that accept Medicaid um, to form state pay, payment through the state. Um, we are, we're all private pay in, in our building. Um, most places that do take Medicaid, they require um, two to three years typically of private pay before you spend down to Medicaid, um, you know, but... We I won't dive into all of it, but you know the state of Washington. Ben and I have been up on the hill in Olympia, um, talking with folks. Um, that what you're after? And at exactly. conferences where it's a big topic of, of discussion. But the 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 reimbursement in Washington State, it for Medicaid is is cool. far too low. Um, you know, and in fact, they pay more on a daily basis for uh, inmates um, in prisons than they yes. do for senior living. Medicaid in Washington State. So that's accurate. It's that's uh, crazy. It's really <laughs> say a, that it, again because I don't. I mean, they pay more. The state of Washington pays more for inmates in prison on a daily basis than they do reimburse for senior living, senior citizens in communities for Medicaid. So, yeah, we. Uh, so it's it's a it's a big issue in our area. It's 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 forced a lot of people in assisted living type commu- in, in the assisted living realm to not want to license their units is Medicaid because the reimbursement's so low, it's you're, you're losing money right off the top. I mean, who suffers? Right. Yeah, and um, there's no benefit in it. Um, even if you were breaking even, that would be one thing, but that's not the case with the reimbursement rate in Washington State. So it's a big issue. Um, but, um, but so there's a very big discrepancy in a lot of buildings. And of course, with that, you see a lot of discrepancy in, in quality of amenities building to building because of that. You know, and the unfortunate part about our industry is it's really 
it's really an expense. It's really expensive yeah. to live in one of our communities um, and, and retire to live in one of our communities. The unfortunate part is it's not that much cheaper to live in one of the Lower armpit quality. armpits yeah. of our communities. Yeah. It's it's an expensive. It's expensive all around. Um, but but the poor the places that have the poor reputations before provide poor quality of care care and don't have those amenities, they're not that much cheaper, unfortunately. So, but it's a lot. There's a lot. Sorry, there's a lot that goes into it though. It's not you can't you can't look at cost of living and compare it to living in one of our communities just because of the amount of staff that we have, the food that we provide, um, you know, the size of our the size of our buildings, the amenities that we offer. It's uh, Apples a lot of yeah, a lot of times people try to, to do apples to apples because we do have a we do have typically there's an increase um, living in senior living communities. I would say it's probably on average five to seven percent a year, um, and we try to keep we try to keep that on the lower end in our buildings. But um, you know, but you can't you can't a lot of times people try to compare cost of living to the increase that they would see in a senior living community year over year, and you can't do that with uh, I mean. Minimum wage just jumped like a couple bucks. Yeah, a couple bucks an hour. Um, you know, and uh, in buildings our size, I mean, that can be, you know, a half million dollar difference a year. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. <laughs> well, you just answered three questions I had that I was going to ask. That's great thought. But can you guys expand a little bit on <clears throat> health care, um, the changes with Obamacare? both when it got uh, initiated and then now the proposal changes and how does that affect you guys and uh, uh, how does that affect your patients for better or worse is that something that people should be thinking about well, Obamacare is going to be it's going to be the elimination of the Medicaid expansion we are both in positions not to be so heavily impacted by Medicaid as a reimbursement you know so there's that um not to say we're not at all, I'm not at all impacted by it. Um, Medicaid has, the Medicaid expansion has allowed people who have deferred access or have not had access to um, health care or deferred um, health issues for a long time because of uh, employer costs and stuff like that, um, have given them access and then they've gone in for, for con gone in and got that taken care of and then they've become skilled nursing patients. But I've been able. I've had to limit that to a certain degree because then again, it is the state funding it, and so it's going to be very. It's going to be pretty limited. I'm going to end up spending more than I'm going to be. Getting, it's going to be break even on a good day, okay? But um, it's a lot better than it's. It's mitigated a lot of the loss, you know. So I'll, I'll be able to take more of those patients. Um, this is a really boring answer, right? But the what's changed in healthcare? Nothing. The only thing. Healthcare has not changed except to be except to change more quickly and more drastically. Let me tell you from my standpoint is that um, we don't really know what kind of changes are coming back because they can't agree on a plan. All right, do they want to repeal it entirely and just leave us back where we were and uh, you know 24 million more people um, uninsured? How is that going to how is that going to affect us? I think that's going to affect my staff and their families more. Right. Honestly, and there's going to be a lot of life changes that it might affect my. Uh, I'm not saying that I underpay my folks, but I'm going to say that there are a number of people who who rely on some some social service to a certain degree because 
however they're structured in their in their personal life. Um, that's just going to change something, and we're going to feel a ripple effect on that. What I'm seeing more of, and this has nothing to do with the uh, the uh, administration in in office right now, or little to do with the administration in office, is we're seeing compounding regulations. Where I am the most highly regulated industry, and we have like you know 500 plus federal regulations, they just added a bunch more, mm-hmm. and now they're redefining a bunch more. Why? I don't know, um, but. Healthcare has changed only to become more difficult to navigate as a, as a provider. Um, it's becoming more punitive. And this is where I want to kind of go on record and saying that I don't, where I don't understand this. This is like, this is, this is me just coming in. Just imagine it's kind of like just small town country boy just coming in and looking at this and, and trying to understand that regulations have only increased over the last 15, 20 years. Keep going. More and more and more and more, right? I'm going to talk to Ryan. Right. <laughs> and, and they've only increased more and more and more, right? And so you would think with more regulation and more funding towards regulators, you'd think that there would be, kind of like putting more cops and more firemen into the situation, there would be an improvement, right, in, in, the, in the overall situation that, they're, that they're, uh, they're regulating. But now they have, they literally have marching orders to intensify their, um, their um I guess you know intensify their in, their inspection of things, and to create or to basically to generate more citations at a higher intensity at a higher level. You feel better? Oh, dude! Right on. And then, and so you're thinking to yourself like, so you're gonna have to bring catheters with you next time. If <laughs> I was looking, if I was looking at this from, <laughs> if I was looking at this from any normal standpoint, I'd have to say like, if things only if they're only harsher. Um, or you know, like high, more intense citations and a higher volume. You know what I mean? Like kind of like if the murder rate went up and the number of murders, you know, and like the the how the violent crimes had gone up, even after putting more cops on the street and more money into the police force, I would not call that a successful program. But somehow or another, that's the way it's going, and no one's looking that direction. I would have to say, like, can you say that care has improved if all the the report cards are only getting worse? You know, and they're not. The care is actually improving there. And so that's what I'm finding. It's like they're just getting meaner. Just to, to, to add to that um, as an example, so Ben had talked about how everything's getting – the regulations are just getting higher and higher and higher on us. And, and Stakes are higher. You know, recent, mm. recent – I say recently. It's been a few years now, but there was a bill that was passed, and you might know the, the name of the bill off the top of your head. But, but essentially it forced myself, uh, Ben – the hospital, all, every adult family home, to start hiring CNAs. The, the option was to either hire CNAs or to hire people that were HCAs or to, to go through your, or to implement your own HCA program, um, which essentially is like 80 hours of, is like 80 hours of training, I think. Mm. Can, you, um, quick, can you just quickly? Sorry, yeah. So what's H, a CNA? And a what's CNA is a certified nurse's assistant. An HCA is a home care aide. So you, they either had to have a home care aid certification or a certified nurse's assistant. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you can't hire HCAs, can you? No, no, they have to be certified. So, it, it, but, but, but essentially, and maybe prior to that, I don't know, you guys might have been hiring CNAs all along. Yeah, we have to. We can't so, have anything else. But the impact it had on my building is prior to that bill passing, I could basically hire anybody off the street that could pass a background check and a drug screen. They had to go through our own internal 
tr um, orientation and training process that was approved by the state. Um, and, um, and that was all we had to do to hire and train to, to, to get caregivers to, to work for us, you know. And so three or four years ago, I mean, I posted an ad for a, a part-time or full-time caregiving position. I'd have 40 applicants. Um, and when they passed that bill, and the bill was, you know, it sounds great. We're going to increase the amount of training that your employees have to have to be able to provide care for people. Um, and they've got to go through this. Basically, it was like it was a, a two is like a two week course. And so it's, essentially it's two weeks of class time and two weeks of clinical time that they have to do. And, and, um, and you have to provide that. Right. We have to provide it or they get it on their own. And, and they can take that with them wherever they go, if they go through nursing school or wherever they go. But typically being a caregiver for our buildings is a stepping stone mm -hmm. into nursing school or if they want to be a PA or whatever they might do with their career. Uh, but, but what it ended up doing to us is it created a huge challenge because there, was a, there became a huge shortage of right. CNAs in our area, which is Clark County. And if you went on Craigslist today and you looked up CNA in, uh, as a job posting, there's hundreds if i'd be surprised if there was less than 200 job postings for cnas right now hmm. um and it may it it took and at, at that point in time when that bill passed i bet you five percent of my applicants were cnas um and the challenge was is all the people that were applying to be caregivers that weren't cnas they were looking, most of those people were looking to be caregivers as a career. A lot of them were middle-aged women, maybe they're empty nesters, and they had a genuine, they wanted to care for people. That was, they, you know, they had, they had a genuine vested interest in, in doing that position. And that nothing against CNAs, or, um, but the majority of the people that we get that are CNAs, they're CNAs because they had, that's a stepping stone for them in their career. So naturally my turnover is now that much higher because those people are, are only being, are, most of them are only have gone through that process of becoming a CNA to further their education and career, which of course we all promote. Um, but the reality is I would, I would have to say over that, over that time frame, my quality of staff went down because I wasn't getting the people that were coming in where caregiving was their passion and that's what they were, you know, and, and at that time I had several staff that were middle-aged women and five to seven-year employees um you know and through turnover that's very much dwindled to to the longevity of some of my staff just because of that natural turnover and the and the competitiveness i mean to be honest with you i mean why would i why would a caregiver come work for me when they can go work for ben for 50 cents to a dollar more an hour um or better yet get two dollars more an hour at the hospital and it can right. compete at this huge competitive edge i mean i've got you know, I, I employ maybe 80 to 100 caregivers at my building, and I've got in-home care agencies that come in and provide care for some residents that are driving cars into my, into my building that are saying $500 sign-on bonus, bonuses for CNAs. That's how competitive it's wow, gotten. That and that's what that, that bill that got passed caused that shortage. And honestly, it, it resulted in poorer, poorer quality of care for residents and patients mm -hmm. because the shortage of, of staff creating a vacuum. So does your facilities and you as, as uh, directors or administrators, do you guys have sounding boards where you can help on a state local level kind of dictate these bills and, and help? Do we have what? a sounding board, <coughs> a sounding board for your legislat legislatures to get 
these bills formed in a way that's going to benefit everybody? Or we have uh, like political action committees. Yeah, so that's something Ben's actually much more involved in than I am with Waka and right. I mean, Ben's you've been up on Capitol Hill and Olympia a lot of times pushing different issues with the the way um, the Washington Healthcare Association, which is Waka, what we're talking about. We're both we're both um, it's our association. It's um, you know, professional guild is a collection of nonprofits, a collection of post acute providers that all pool in their money to be have a louder voice on the hill, right? Like anything else, I think you see you see this in, in almost any industry or any interest, and uh, um, healthcare. You know, uh, the hospital wish at Washington State Hospital Association they had the same thing. It's a ultimately it's a lobbying group. Okay, when it comes down to it, um, trying to amplify the voice of the people who are the providers and all that kind of stuff. But, but more interesting, what it's done is it it takes um, you have legislators who are writing these bills that to, on paper, it sounds fantastic. I mean, honestly, you know, to, to think, to take uh, Drew's community, you know, which can serve, you know, 100, 200, I don't know, 300 people, and you're like, let's make sure that everybody is licensed under the state of Washington to be a certified nursing, oh my God, Bob, that's great. Makes well, sense. Yeah, it makes sense, that's fantastic. Bob, don't look at how many people are going through the programs and what the access is to the programs and what you're actually doing to those rural programs, you know what I mean, where kids, like, leave at 18, you know, no one wants to be, you know, Okanagan, you know, at mm -hmm. 19, 20 years old too often, and that's going to cause a vacuum in the, in the labor pool, and then all of a sudden they're going to be working on a staffing shortage. So that kind of thing can be difficult. So what they do is they we lobby hard and we get up there and we get up on the hill and we talk to these folks that are making decisions about our industry that are hearing for the first time from us. You know, if we get the opportunity to get out of our building and sit there, for the first time they're, they're hearing something about the industry itself that they're making a decision about. I would not want to be, uh, that's why, I mean, uh, too often Drew and I are sitting in our office and somebody from like, you know, social services or nursing is like, listen, I need you to help me with a decision. I'm like, well, I think I need you to help me understand what the hell I'm making a decision about, you know? Mm -hmm. And so here these legislators are doing the same thing. They are not experts, and so they get, they're getting uh, information from their staffers, and their staffers are only going, uh, that information is only as good as the people they're reaching out to. They have no, they have very little clue of what they're really making decisions on, but once they pass that and they get enough votes, it becomes reality. It, it happened in the mortgage industry Did as well. It? Yeah, government got involved, and people that didn't have you know direct mortgage experience started making decisions, changing regulations. Um, like or, for example, our our old good faith estimate went from a very clear to read one page document to a very hard to read three page document that didn't make sense, didn't have the customer's actual monthly payment on it. Uh, it didn't break out the closing costs properly, so borrowers confused. It confused most of the loan officers in the industry. And so to, right. to take something that was very simple, and they thought, oh, well, let's just do this, this, and this. And uh, and they've since changed it, and it's gotten a bit better. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this is the same thing happened in, in the mortgage industry as well. I, and I think... No, I, and I can go on a tangent about this, which I won't, but... Um, <laughs> which I will not. But it hap <laughs> I think it ha can happen on just about every level, um, you know, and, and I'm, a, I'm a huge... I'm big into fishing. I'm big into hunting. Um, you know, one of the biggest challenges being a hunter and a fisherman and a lot of the people that live out in the country and are dealing with wildlife, especially pre predator management and things like that, um, you know, Seattle 
decides what's going to happen with predator management in, in Washington State. And it doesn't and make sense for everywhere and else. And Portland right. makes decisions on mm -hmm. what's going to happen with predator management in Oregon. And the guy living in... Um, you know, the guy living down in Pendleton right. or in John Day who's got a cougar problem or, or a, now a wolf problem um, didn't really have a say in it because 99% of the votes came from Portland. Well, I think we should just split the state in half. Right. But, um, <laughs> but you know, so, but so I guess I, I'm not trying to, I, I don't want to divert everything to hunting. Gerrymandering. But no. I will say uh, <laughs> that similarly, though, in, in our industry, it was a similar thing. It got passed. It sounded great. It made sense to pass a bill. We're, we're requiring everybody to have better education, but nobody really looked at the impact it was actually going to have. Mm -hmm. if, if they did that, they should have made it much more affordable and available to, to acquire that train, the, the training. Yeah, that, I'm with they, him that on that one. You know? yeah, it just seems like to. there's got to be a better way than making big, massive changes on a federal or even a full state right. so quickly and so big at the same time in reaction to something. In our industry, Ryan alluded to a little bit, it's, it's eerie after talking to you guys how similar they are because you had Obamacare. Mm -hmm. We had the Dodd-Frank Act. Right. Right? That came in and completely leveled everything. Whole new regulator. Uh, there was uh, uh, the CFPB is a new regulator. Uh, major fines, lots of money. Killed everything. Rewrote all of our paperwork for better or for worse. And now, new administration talking about changing it or getting rid of it. Mm -hmm. So just like Obamacare, mm -hmm. it was uh, repeal and replace. Now it's just maybe repeal and replace later. So they're going through the same thing with the Dodd-Frank Act. And it's like, tell me how to do it one way or the other, but don't go back and forth, back and forth, because right. it costs us a ton of money. It puts us at a lot of liability to do things the wrong way, right? Yeah. Um, and at the end, it's not benefiting the people that we serve, which is our consumers. Right. Well, and just like it costs you guys more money because now all of a sudden you have to have uh you know a cna versus somebody that through a state uh a state uh certified program you know these people are being trained for you guys mm -hmm. um and now cost you more money same thing happened they came in made all these new rules uh to make it better for the consumer they added more middlemen in the process and it's actually more expensive to get a mortgage than it was prior. Now, there are some good rules that absolutely came from some of it that make our, you know, our housing industry and mortgage industry better and safer. Sure. Um, but, like, they came through and completely changed the way a, a loan officer is paid. They regulated the way we were paid. I just really. like community, local let the community make the. I mean, we're going political now, which I'm really impressed, man. <laughs> did you did you say that we wanted to? Uh, you and I have made gears. it. Yeah, change we, gears. We, <laughs> we're supposed to say politics, Dude, but we're changing gears. Ben and I have talked about politics for like 20 minutes. It's pretty impressive. That's fine. But we talked about healthcare politics. Well, all you're going to do is get me to complain. But I mean, it's <laughs> it's like. So <laughs> you were talking about changing gears. Where were you going to go? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, curious. Because well, uh, Drew had like one more thing he was going to say. No, I'm yeah. 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 Like, sorry. <laughs> no, actually, it was passionate. Yeah, I I knew you guys were going to be great. I knew you guys were going to be you great. Just saying that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, I can't wait to go like back you. and re-listen. Uh, just when you and I were sitting at uh, Tip Top, and we talked a lot about your leadership models. Oh, that's good because I didn't get a phone call. When was that? Uh, it was yeah. The invitation was lost in the mail. Bastards. Well, what we should have done, <laughs> what we should have done, is played around a golf and discussed the podcast prior to doing the podcast. That would have yeah. been. I just called your wife before. 
to see if you had permission. She said no. Oh. Ouch. Yeah, I was out there uh, too busy grilling vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was out there making How do you some... like your eggplant? Rare, medium rare? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like in the dumpster? Oh, let's, let's, uh, <laughs> let's, yeah, let's hear it. Let's switch. Let's switch. Yeah, let's do it. Hard right. Uh, ben, you be the host and you ask some hunting questions. Because. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I would don't love kill to take you out. We almost cut you out last year. Ben but actually wants to go hunting, though. Well, I do, just I as do long as it's above, if, if it's above 40 degrees and below 70 degrees, he'll go hunting. Because I was going to take him out when we got that yeah. freeze. Okay. And Ben goes to my wife, is he really going to take me out? And it's frozen out. Well, it was just really funny because as soon as I brought that up, he was just thrilled to the gills, giddy, actually, because one of his real friends uh, just owned up to being able to go out with him. You know, somebody he wasn't going to have to, like, carry. Somebody who wasn't going to have to carry out there, you know. Where's my cocoa? That's what I was upset about. (laughs) (laughs) We've had very little hunting conversation, so let's have it. I want to hear this. Okay, so. talk about hunting? Let's talk about hunting. Let's talk about hunting. I want to learn about hunting, okay? I I want to know. Let's just throw this really quick. I'm going to hit him first, okay? On this way. So, were you born and raised hunting, or is this something that you discovered um, later on? I mean, knew about, but is this something you became passionate about later on? And if so, tell me. About 25 years old is when I became passionate for it. It's um, called a, it's, the term is late in life hillbilly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. No, and I think it's kind of a trend for people discovering hunting later in their lives because we don't live in a hunting community here. Um, that's, that's not true. How is you, that? You just, is that didn't, true? You, just, you didn't grow up in a hunting family. Well, but, okay, you compare hunting here to hunting in um, uh, Yakima or Eastern Oregon, Eastern Washington. It's, just, it's not like, uh, I don't go to Dick Hanna to buy my truck and have taxidermy on the walls. But if I go to Idaho, there's taxidermy on the walls. Okay? It's true. Well, that's absolutely that's true. I've heard about that. So, um... <laughs> Uh, but my parents are great. It doesn't make them... I mean, my dad was awesome, but he, they, he didn't have a passion for hunting and fishing. Mm-hmm. Um, never did Boy Scouts. Um, but I had a great childhood, lots of things, because there's a lot of opportunities for hobbies and development with kids. It's just hunting and fishing wasn't my family's way. Uh, but I had a lot of friends that did. And um, when I was uh, in my early 20s, I bought a shotgun and start, to start shooting skeet with one of my best friends. And that turned into a pheasant hunt um, and then absolutely fell in love with uh, hunting with bird dogs. I think the bird dog passion came before hunting. Okay. And the first time I went pheasant hunting, I knew I was going to buy a bird dog. I talked about it for a couple of years, did a ton of research. And sure, it was fun shooting pheasants. I loved that, too. But it was the bird dog relationship. And I also grew up without a dog. So maybe that was why. Right. That's not right. And I kind of... You know, because you never grew up with it, I kind of fell off the deep end and went head over heels way into hunting and fishing. Right. Um, and it became a huge passion and a lifestyle, and that's how I'm raising my daughter now. So I don't know if that answers your question. Um, it does, actually. Right on. And then uh, hunting isn't, you don't still hunt. There's three different, 300 different types of hunting and fishing, mm. right? So um, it's a, Lifetime, like this museum, he's uh, hunted over 40 years for this museum. This museum is incredible. It's amazing. So you can constantly l- deepen your love, your passion for hunting in different aspects bow hunting, um, different types of fishing. I d- did uh, muzzleloader, muzzleloader hunting, black mm-hmm. powder hunting for a few years. 
Um, and you can really kind of pick and choose what you like. So where I'm at now, I'm 36. I love bird hunting. Um, absolutely love duck hunting. Huge passion of mine. Um, not in love with big game hunting. I like to do it on occasion, but I don't have the dedication and the athleticism and the passion for it. Well, you're a pretty fit guy. I'm not hitting on you. I just think you're pretty fit. You can. Oh, I think it's a fit. That's no, good. He said fit. Okay. Fit. Like <laughs> it's like, oh man. Yeah. Hey, if you <laughs> call me up on Carissa's toes, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're pretty. You're, I think you can. I think you can. Yeah, are, are, are we gonna go? Are we gonna go hunting? And you're gonna say, I'm sorry. All I have is this two-person sleeping bag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that if you, that if happened you, to you too. If you called me and you said, <laughs> uh, I know you have a muzzleloader tag. Um, I was it, scouting in this unit yesterday, and there's elk here. I'm in, but the 200, the the two week ordeal scouting up and up and down for days and days and days. Totally get it, appreciate it, love to go occasionally, but it's not my deal. But that's the great thing about hunting, is there's a, a huge variety. Right, there is a huge and variety. Until you go out and experience it, so until you go out and you hear the sound of the wind going over ducks ears or ducks wings as they come into you 45 minutes before or after sunrise mm -hmm. you have you don't understand right it is yeah or unless you hear a turkey gobble or an elk bugle you know two bulls fighting or two bucks heck yeah fighting. you know i mean those are until you're in that until you experience that for the first time that it's it, it's uh but even even just being out in nature I mean, I take my my wife sometimes will come out on, on a hunt with us and, and just be hiking. A lot of times she has the camera and she just takes shots and she absolutely loves it. Just being out in nature and just the quietness and it's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you guys go deep. That's a, a sure you way off the campground grid. When you go out into the woods to, to do things, I mean, that's the thing I, I see about your hunt that makes me envious is that you you pack in into areas where there are not people because that's where the animals are. And Some, sometimes not always, but you're, you're still going to, like, even if you're at a campground, you know, you're still going to, you're still going to be potentially hiking into where it depends. I'm talking about campground, like state campground. In, well, in, I mean, uh, you know, there's spots where we deer hunt where we're literally, there's a, just a small campground right off the side of a main highway. Oh, and then you know you're 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 driving to a spot to a trailhead, and then you're mm -hmm. heading in from there. Right. Um, Every, yeah. There's definitely different styles for sure. There are some serious backcountry hunters that literally like pack four to eight miles in, right. set up camp, and then they hunt from there. And that's primarily what that's we what we, we primarily do the backcountry hunts where we're four to seven miles in. Usually and, on public land, right? Yeah, public land, four to seven miles in, and, and we're back there for, you know, seven to ten days. Um, and we've done several hunts, New Mexico, Washington, Idaho, um, you know, Alaska. I've, I, I, I make it to Alaska just about every year, and I used to guide fishing up there for, for, uh, for a few years. And, and so we go up and do sick of blacktail and, and reindeer hunts up in Alaska. And, um, but, yeah. I liked your answer, and I, and I can appreciate that because he came in later in life. I like that. Drew, same question for you then. So where, where in your timeline did hunting kick off? You know, I grew up in a family that was huge on fishing. Ever since I can remember walking, we, f we fished. My grandparents owned property in Lincoln City, 
fishing was just a way of life. Grew up catching salmon, steelhead, trout as a little kid. But believe it or not, I was the first person in my in my immediate family to actually um, start hunting. And I was probably like 16, 16, 17 years old. Um, and kind of me and my best friend got a passion for deer hunting, went out, and uh, first day I'd ever went out deer hunting, I was packing a thirty out 6 rifle, I shot a spike buck. And um, had no idea what to do with it from there, and I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd cut fish up my whole life. So, you know, we rolled it over, thinking how hard could it be, and I sunk my knife blade in oh, to oh the no. stomach of that deer. Oh, no. And, oh, boy. Yeah, I was puking. My buddy was puking, and, and um, <laughs> we finally, you know, it took us a while. We got that deer gutted and skinned, and it was a cert- definitely a learning curve. But from there, um, you know, I just got really into hunting. I hunted deer with, I rifle hunted for deer and elk for a number of years. Uh, I'd mentioned I went to Kodiak, Alaska on a, a guided fishing. When I was in Kodiak, I got really big into hunting, and um, I did a little bit of bird hunting when I was uh, just out of high school, but... Um, one of our clients in Kodiak was from North Carolina and got me, started talking about hound hunting. And, um, you know, when I came home from Kodiak, Alaska, I got really big into hound hunting. It was something that really uh, piqued my interest. And so for, for a number of years, I hunted bears. We hunted bear, cougar, bobcat, raccoon with hounds. I hunted with a bunch of guys where we were high, we were, uh, we worked for the state of Washington on damage permits where we went and and took bears out of certain areas where they're damaging trees for uh, warehouser and can you just explain what hound hunting is for the people that are listening hound hunting yeah hound hunting <laughs> is where you're you're pursuing in our case primarily we were pursuing big game with uh with hound dogs so there's lots of different species of hounds but but essentially you're using you're using and training hounds to to tree and and catch big game um and um, you know we had cougar permits that that we drew that we could that we caught cougars on and and um, you know and, and it's funny you know hound hunting is one of those real heavy it's it's a real controversial subject even amongst hunters because some people agree with it and some people don't agree with it some people think it's kind of cheating because you're using dogs but the reality is is if most people knew how much time and effort you have to put into training those dogs mm-hmm. from from month old puppies to, to the point where they actually could be successful and catch game. Um, it's, it's a, a heck of a lot of work. Um, and it's a lot of work. I mean, bear hunting is an exa- is exhausting. I mean, right. and, uh, with hounds, but really exciting and exhilarating at the same time. But anyhow, so I got into that and, um, and for me, I, f- I fell out of bird hunting. Um, I had friends that continued to want to bird hunt, and it didn't really pique my interest because I felt like I was always trying to chase, I was always trying to chase the something that was more exciting or something that was getting my adrenaline going a little bit more, you know. And so from rifle hunting, I got into archery hunting, and you know now we're bugling with now we're bugling with bulls at ten yards, and they're screaming right in your face, and you're trying to and you've got a bow and arrow as opposed to a rifle. Um, Have you ever heard of a bull bugle? No. In real life? Mm. You know, and... You, you, uh, you have to do it. You have to go hear one scream. It's it's incredible. Really? Yeah. yeah. And can, then, you, can you bring one up? Yeah. Yeah, pull up an elk bugle. And then, I, and then from there I got into, you know, hound hunting. And I've got, you got cougars in a tree 10 feet above you. Or you, you got bears on the ground, and your do- the bears refu- won't the bear won't climb a tree, and it's sitting there fighting your dogs, and you've got to 
you, you know, handle that situation or, um, you know, we're rattling a buck with antlers. Um, yeah, watch this. Right after the commercial. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, uh, so I was, I was just looking for the next thing. 18,000 views. Goddamn, look at the rack. So if you're archery hunting, you're what, 40, 50 yards away from this bull coming in? Yeah, I mean, in this video, I don't know, potentially, but to be, to effectively shoot and kill an elk, I mean, for myself, there's some people that can reach way out there, but I wouldn't feel confident taking more than a 50 or 60 yard shot on a, on and, a bull. And this bull's either coming in to fight, most likely he's coming in to fight another bull off of his harem of, of cows, right? Or, or if you're making cow sounds, he's coming in because he thinks you're a cow in heat and he's coming to breed. Yeah. Really, but so you call you're calling those animals, you know, the ability to call those animals in, and and um, look at this. This guy's wow. a yeah, this guy's a two it's yards. terrifying, right? It is. It's terrifying, terrifying when you're right. Yeah. It's exciting, yeah. You know, and last year, my buddy Tyler and I, I mean, are in a lot of the guys I hunt with. So that's a cow call. That's a person there he making comes. a cow He's call. Coming in, right? Yeah. Holy holy cow. shit! This is a <laughs> now, mind you, this thing will absolutely destroy yeah. you. Oh, snap. Yeah, whoa. This thing looks like it's going to kill him. Why is he so close? Does he have one of those mirror blinds? It's a big mirror. The guy's talking. That elk's probably never seen a person before. Yeah, it's like, still what, is, what is going on here? But... Uh, that, that was too close. <laughs> that was awesome. That, that was too close. <laughs> <laughs> that was too close. That was too close. Because he got gored by that thing, right? The, the, going, the look on your yeah. face was so awesome. You're like, <laughs> it was like snap. It, that thing looks like pissed or not not happy. It's no, an adventure going yeah. on. It is an adventure. You don't have to go spend lots of money and go long distances to do it. Mm. But it's an adventure. It's it's a break from the nine to five grind, mm -hmm. and. Uh, <clears throat> You know, not everybody wants to hunt, which is fine. Totally respect that. But it is, it cha it's changed who I am. Mm -hmm. um, definitely. And well, we didn't talk about work-life balance, but do a day out in the field or day up at Lake Merrill. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've taken Ben up to Lake Merrill. And, and me. Yeah, and, and Drew. Okay. And uh, uh, we should, maybe the three of us, go this fall. Because if you go in September, the fishing can be dynamite. And there's nobody up there yeah. in the evening. But you can hear the elk bugle. We should go camping. Yeah. Yeah. No question. The, you know, the one thing, though, um, you know, the, the biggest benefit, I love, I love hunting not because I like to kill animals. That's not why I like to hunt. Is he close enough for that? Um, not because I love to kill animals. Um, and not just for the meat, but... That's a perk, you know. The meat is a definite perk. You got, I mean, my freezers are typically always full of wild game. I honestly couldn't tell you the last time I went to the store and purchased meat to, like, cook into steaks or anything like that. Um, so that's a, a huge perk of it. But really, it's the, the I mean, the sport, the sport of it. And, um, you know, you're out in the outdoors, fresh air, you're hiking. You're typically having a really good time and, build, and making memories with friends. Um, and it's always a challenge, you know. Yeah, we yeah. had a Pe people are mistaken about the success rate. Like in Washington, it's like ten percent oh, for less. elk hunters. Yeah. yeah, it's less. Than we asked yeah. Roger, who is probably the most successful hunter I've ever met. What do you think his success rate is? 
Sweden. I wouldn't even know where to start. He said 20%. Really? Which is still a really good statistic. But if you think that of all the animals in here, he only had a 20% success rate, think about how much time it took. Okay. So if there's right. 200 animals in here, how many trips was that? Right. Right. Unbelievable. Yeah. And, you know, talking about regulations, right? Hunting is it, you just don't jump in your pickup with a rifle and go shoot a doe in the head. It's not like people think. Right. Right. So let's say you want a duck hunt this year. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, you got to take a hunter safety course. Really? Yep. To get, the te- to get your tags? Yeah. When were you born? 74. Ooh. What's the cutoff? <laughs> Look it up. Jesus Christ. What's the cutoff? Not positive, but but it, it, honestly, am I on a, am I no, on a no, silver no, pass no, or but, something? No, but, it yeah. <laughs> but but even if you have your AARP card, that's oh. that's, that's, <laughs> that's fine. No, that's fine. But I think it's seventy-two. It's, a, a lot of people don't know, but Ben and I share the the same birthday. Yeah, and March you 23rd. Would, and most people would think he's younger than me. Ah, same age, maybe close. Which he is. 10 years difference exactly, 84, 74. You're younger than me? Yeah, I wouldn't have thought you were born in 74. I appreciate that. But not, not at all. No, <laughs> I would have said, said yeah, 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 yeah. I was AARP thinking like card. 64. So, <laughs> so, Dad, can you take me to ice cream when we're done? <laughs> not even a problem. What he, what what he was trying to get into is they do have disabled hunter permits. You should have taken I told you last year take your hunter safety course because you could do it online. Well, and the, you can't do that anymore, so you have to go in the class. And I did it when I was 24. I do think he makes the cut though. I think I don't think he has to but go. He has to, it is you know, still safety. smart to take the hunter safety course. I would think so. I would rather take and, a hunter safety and, and go through it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's nothing wrong. He just might be with a bunch of 10-year-olds. Right. Which but is when I went. I so mean, my son's seven, so if you don't get around to this for a few years, you can pick him up from my house and you guys can go to hunter safety great. class together. Should, that's really, really super <laughs> but good. We're not going to let Ben go a few years. He's got to get, he's got to, we're going <laughs> yeah, hunting, we're going hunting next year. You need to, like, tomorrow, mm-hmm. sign up for the hunter safety course because it's not something you can do the day before you buy your hunting license, okay? Because it might be a month, it might be like a four class deal. Right. The cool thing we could even well, and it's so easy to go Just to look it up. Or it, no, it's so easy to go to the Ridgefield Wildlife Refuge. We're really lucky um, to have the 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 access to hunting around here that we do. That's mm-hmm. so close. Um, but like my parents have a a pond on there at their house that my dad lets me hunt ducks and geese um, when they're in season, obviously. Um, but I'm able to take. So Cody actually, I've I've hunted big game since uh, late teens. And then uh, my son, seven, Cody introduced me to duck hunting two years ago. This will be my third season. And so now I've brought my little boy. Ooh, sorry. Did he just miss it? I was right. I was right. It's 72. 72. You have to take it. I have to take it? Yeah. Oh, well. So, but now it's become, now it's become a thing where there was. I'm too young. (laughs) It's really, really great. Yeah. So suck on that, fellas. Right. You know. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> so, but now it's become a thing where it's something that I can share with my little boy. Right. Because he can't go to elk camp. He can't come to deer camp. Like, he can't hike those miles. He's too little. Yeah. But I can take him out for whether it's 30 minutes or five hours in a duck blind, and he enjoys himself, and I get to spend quality time with him. Yeah. So it's a family thing. Um, and then just getting your kids away from, you know, playing on the ipad all day long you know so getting them out outside and yeah. and, and doing active things and with that them. quality time i mean you're dealing with 
um, extremely dangerous things. So the responsibility. And when I was with Pheasants Forever, we would uh, our our uh, focus was youth hunters, and so um, we would take kids out. So there's no age minimum for hunting. Right, you can be as young as you want to hunt as long as you can pass hunter safety, which is typically seven or eight. Seven or eight, as long as you can shoot a gun and the, the, the instructors feel you're safe enough to hunt. So we would take kids as old as young as eight, seven, eight out pheasant hunting, and uh, the cutoff for the youth hunt was 15. I think if you're over 15, you didn't qualify for the youth hunt anymore, which doesn't make sense. But uh, so I would see kids out, maybe a single mom or parents that don't hunt, and we would take them out and get them excited about bird hunting. And then they would come back year after year after year, and all of a sudden they're 17, 18 years old. They got their pickup with their hunting dog and their shotgun, and after school they're out at the lake, at uh, Vancouver Lake pheasant hunting. And that's a huge amount of responsibility for a teenager to have, mm-hmm. right? And so think about how that person's experience going into their career in school and everything's going to be. I think about it as like <clears throat> what I'm missing out on is like the intrinsic value there is in being able to hunt down your own food. Realistically, like so, um, whatever brought us around to, whatever brought you guys around to hunting and wherever you are in your life, like my life course has had it so I just have not had access to a father who would take me mm-hmm. out or the family members that would take me out. And I grew up in Klatskanite, Oregon, where... Which is weird. Where, which is weird, exactly. In September, no, you know, October, November, whatever. It's like, weird that you stuff all your teeth. I, it, you, you know what? I, I don't. <laughs> Are you going to pull your two front teeth yeah, out? Yeah, I'm going I'm to rip them out. This is a bridge. <laughs> but it's, I was born in Juneau, Alaska. Okay. And I like to fish. I, I basically know nothing about fishing. So it's common. It, it can it can happen. It's 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 not. Let's just say like the guy the gun racks, and this is you know obviously way pre nine eleven, but like I mean, gun racks were a regular occurrence in the in the high school parking lot. You know, kids would be missing school left and right. You know, to to go out there and hunt. But like I have not had the opportunity to go out there. I did go once. You know, hunting, and I'm not going to go into that story here because. It was uh, it's did, offensive. Did you cry? It's offensive to hunters. Oh. It's offensive to uh, anybody who. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. I wish. Actually, it was uh, it deliverance. Was bad. Yeah, no, deliverance was was a better story a than, than me. Like just like just <laughs> closing my eyes and just re- like unloading a rifle into so the area a... where deer were. You know what a semi-auto, and then my friend having to take down that doe. But let's tell you about this. Shush it. <laughs> so, but, and it wasn't within season. It's all good. So, in doe season? <laughs> right? <laughs> what and, unit was that? Yeah. Anyway, oh, yeah. the truth is, when it comes down to it, what thing I always wanted, what I think I would really value is that would I be able to manage survival where the grocery stores don't have fresh meat? waiting in a cooler where coolers don't work because there's no power where something occurs like that would i be able to go out i mean i have the guns for it i've chosen to purchase a 12 gauge you know so that i could go and pump action so that i could like you know pull things right up out of the air like that i have um 357 like long barrel you know revolver you know that that you can hunt with that if it comes right on down to it. it's not a hunting rifle but if it's, it's got a multi-use and then I have my 22 varmint rifle, you know, and I'm like, these things were were selected carefully so that they would be you like for their utility, 
but would I know what to do? Would I know where to shoot? Would I know how to field dress? That's the thing. And that well, is different because you can ruin all of your meat. But Ben Ben and his wife, though, I think I think Ben would really like to get into it. I think I think uh, your wife would like it as well. But I agree. They, uh, she had fun. Yeah, they came yes. over for dinner that one night, and I ha- we had a deer hanging in the in my shop. God, that was good. Um, and she was super excited. They went because she got to go down there, and and we let her. Uh, she grabbed a knife and cut the tenderloins out of the deer. Oh, nice! And we ended up cut, cutting up awesome. the tenderloins. Yeah, all of them. And we were yeah, we were cooking yeah. the tenderloins that night for dinner, and she thought that was the coolest thing ever because she was really into the the idea that it wasn't uh, there was no no hormones, it wasn't farm raised. Um, um, you know, was it wasn't miserable. Yeah, it was wild, organic. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it died a clean death. You know, and that was really important to her. Um, but um, I think she'd be really into it, and you'd get to eat red meat. Well, regularly, non factory farm. How to hunt from a survival <laughs> standpoint. Yeah. Well, and uh, uh, Carissa, my wife, uh, does not like to hunt or fish. She likes to crab. She doesn't like to hunt or fish, but she totally supports me. She loves eating the meat, loves doing all that, but she's just not into it, so that's okay, too. Uh, So let's get back to these regulations since we're talking about regulations in your industry and my industry. Okay. So you want to go duck hunting. you got to take a hunter safety course. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to have a uh, small game license, I believe. Migratory bird license. You yeah. have to have a migratory bird. I'm counting here. So there's three. You have to have a migratory bird license. Federal bird stamp. Uh, federal duck stamp. Federal duck stamp. Um, if you want to hunt geese, you have to have a uh, goose identification card on the west side of Washington. Which is a very... It, you have to take a test, and it's yeah. not easy. It's a very difficult test. Goose identity. How many times have you been goose? Oh. <laughs> So you basically they're, they're keeping you from like just shooting crane, no, right? No, there's still there, different, there, there's types, different of, uh, types of geese. There's like oh, seven so sub, sub, subspecies. Yeah, so like there's, there's, like, there's literally subspecies of Canadian geese, and you can only shoot a certain number of, of that cool. type. Really? Google it. There's a good image. It shows all seven side by side. And you have to be able to pull this business out of like... In the, the moment. Yeah. In the moment. Right. If you shoot too many duskies... One. On like, say like... Like on you know like the sun is like we're talking about sunrise oh yeah like you know and mist and distance yeah and adrenaline and drinking and so like yeah well we haven't been you know drinking (laughs) no I'm just joking (laughs) drinking Um, coffee is what I said so really Uh, scroll down hold on one there's one where they they have seven of them laid out yeah I know exactly I have the one you're talking about saved on my cell phone Um, and so you have to have well like here's 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 three different ones right here yeah that's a good one. Dusky, taverners, and cackling. Okay. So you would look at those and go, oh, there's three geese laying there. They're all different kinds of geese. And not only that, but you, I mean, you don't need a test for this, but the limit for ducks is six, I believe. Mm-hmm. And here's the limit. There's, um, a, there's a five different. Right here? Yeah. Okay. That's five different geese? I thought they were just like different ages. <laughs> and this is this is the hard part. No, they're they're flying. Those are different. Right. That's they're, they're they're flying fifty to eighty yards above you, and you're trying to select what's what. Uh uh-uh. uh Right. So, it's not like you just grab your shotgun and go out hunting. I mean, it's, no. and then there's the gear and everything that's involved, which is why last year I was just trying to get you to come out as a as a uh, spotter. What do you call it? A, a not a guest, but a More viewer. Viewer. Um, De- dead weight. Uh, just to kind of see, 
Because it's not like, and that's what sucks, you know, for fishing. They have that one day a year where no license is required. Mm-hmm. Really? I wish they would do that for hunting, where you could, because uh, just to buy those five licenses, you're well over $200. Yeah, it's expensive. And, and okay. to hunt pheasants here on the west side. Yeah, you're $190, just, or $90. $90 yeah, yeah. just for your pheasant license. But uh, that's a lot of, that's a big investment, not counting the ammo, guns, waiter, decoys, camo. It's unfortunate it could be because it's becoming a it's it's slowly becoming a rich man's sport. Yes. Where years ago, I mean, there was a lot of families that relied on on hunting season and being able to affordably buy their tags to put meat in the freezer. Mm-hmm. You Which know, is what it should be about, I think. Right. Frankly. And sadly, sadly, it's it's kind of become a, it's definitely becoming a rich man's sport. It's becoming um, it's become a higher end recreation or, or whatever for whatever. Well, and, and well, and if we're not careful, it's going <clears> to become <throat> even more expensive because we're going to lose our private land. The exclusivity of it. And then you're going to be paying to hunt on somebody else's land. Well, for example, these last few years, I've hunted on warehouser land for over the last 10 years. Three years ago, warehousers started charging a permit. The first year it was, I think it was 50 bucks. Uh, Second year it was 150. Third year it was 160, and now it's over 300 dollars. And that's just to access their land. That's just just for a key. That's just to get through the gate. And then you're still not guaranteeing anything. So, like, one of the things I was uh, telling, you know, one of my hunting partners, I said there's four of us in the group. I was like, well, we've always wanted to go somewhere different because the reason we hunt that is because we know the area really well. Why don't we pull our 1200 bucks, buy some beef, some organic beef, put it in the freezer, go hunt a new spot, and then if we're not successful, we're going to come home Eat. to a bunch of organic beef. Right. And if we are successful awesome it didn't cost us 1200 bucks to to hunt that to hunt that land yeah god Uh, so for anybody that's listening that if you're still listening uh oh well of course they're hanging on every word well um you know there's three really good hunting channels outdoor network um sportsman's sportsman's and the pursuit channel and to be honest i don't like most of the hunting shows on there because it's just Kill, 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 kill. It's all you just see all the the kill shots, right? Well, there's one guy out there that's become a huge celebrity in the hunting community. There's there's multiple. There's multiple, but the guy that I would recommend somebody that's not um, an avid hunter that's interested is to watch the show Meat Eater, which okay. is available on Netflix. Correct. It's Stephen Ranella, mm-hmm. and it's the most accurate, true to life hunting show there is. Um, I would say one out of three shows he harvests the animal. Um, him, Randy Newberg. There's a he's kind so, of created solo a whole hunter. New, yeah, there's a handful of them that are just they're they're like everyday private or I'm sorry, public land hunters, mm-hmm. such as ourselves, yeah. where they they don't have access to you know thousands of acres of private land and you know all the animals are there. It's real and and kind of how our conversation's been is kind of how they describe hunting, and it's it's. And for people that think hunt, hunting's a political issue, um, I think Stephen Rinella said it best. He goes, uh, the liberals are trying to take our hunting rights and gun rights away, and the conservatives are trying to take our public land away. So it's not a groupthink, party-affiliated issue. Um, and I think that, that uh, the politicians hijack it, and it divides uh, the, community, the, the community, and it keeps people from being interested in hunting. Um, so, 
Uh, yeah, Stephen Ranella, Meat Eater. Uh, he's got a great podcast. The Meat Eater um, Podcast. The Meat Eater Podcast. And yeah. he's got a great website. Um, and it's available on Netflix now, which is the first hunting show ever on Netflix. Hmm. Yeah, there's a couple others, but yeah, it's the Meat Eater. Meat mm-hmm. Eater, yeah. Yeah, and he's got a great book I'll let you borrow when you do start hunting. That uh, It's pretty cool. They, he harvests, I mean, he's not, you know, he if he has an opportunity to kill a really big animal that's a trophy animal, then, then he does, obviously. But they, uh, but a lot of his shows is really about, harv- like, it's more about harvesting the meat and the hunt. And then he usually has, somewhere in his show, he's, he's cooking that meat over a fire and showing you how to season it with gunpowder or you know or, or i'm serious that's what i want to do I want, yeah like I want he's to. he's i mean he's got a new recipe almost every show he's showing you some kind of recipe on how he's cooking that game and whether it's over an open fire in the middle of the desert or or in a you know in a kitchen he's showing all kinds of different things on how he's cooking bear meat or pronghorn or whatever he might be just don't follow that one recipe where he gets trichinosis from bear meat <laughs> well, yeah 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 so, uh, <laughs> just with the hep C from that goat. I just want you to make sure don't, don't get that one. Uh, but I, it, I would get up tomorrow morning before you work and I'd go to the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife website and figure out how to take your hunter safety course. Here's the thing that I'm grateful for when I was living in Portland, you know, and we lived there for a number of years and, and it had its own appeals before now. Um, there was a, there were a lot of different priorities. Moving back to, and I say back because I grew up in Clatskanai, Oregon. You know what I mean? And then in the whole time I was in the Coast Guard, I was in Astoria, so we're not far off from each other. We're on the coastal range. Like, coming back when I moved to Vancouver. No, you're right. And I moved to Clark County. Like, it felt like like I was around people where I know that when the shit hit the road, you know, the rotary oscillator, like, I'm surrounded by people who I can actually learn from and like the relationships that I've made here, like if it all hits a fan, like you cats are going to take care of us. You know what I mean? Like there are people who have tangible skills that for survival that over the river, they don't have and no offense to the kids (laughs) over in Portland listening. If there's anybody, but honestly, like I like that about this area. Like there is something I do really truly value going out and getting your own food. Mm -hmm. I really do. I'm not talking about like, earning the money to be able to go out there and like buy half an organic cow, you know, as much as that would be great to be able to do that, not everybody has those resources. Like, to I really, really do value like fishing and doing that. That is the, something about the Pacific Northwest that we're really lucky to have. Year-round. Year-round. So next July, I want to have uh, you guys back on the podcast, and I want to ask you these same questions again after you've experienced some form of hunting. After my, my breakdown? Because that's what's going to happen between now and July. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have a Coast Guard question for you. We'll oh, your, yeah. We'll bring your caregiver with you. <laughs> no kidding. Do, do you care? Real quick. I'm sorry. Go, go. Before we leave hunting, I just want, I'm curious, going around the table, what, what's the best wild game you've ever had? Start with Ryan. Elk. Elk? Yeah. yeah why? It's good. <laughs> it's just good. Yeah. It, you know, I, I don't like a really, I don't like, I'm not a big, I'm not a big fish fan. Yeah. Um, that just, uh, now there are some fish, you know, depending on how it's cooked, you know, um, I enjoy it, but it's not like I'll go to the store and I'll, I'll pick a steak, a nice steak over fish any day. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and you can get some 
you can get some gamey meat no matter what animal it is, but elk. I like elk. Right on. What do you think, Cody? Especially that deer you killed where you stabbed him in the gut. That probably was really good meat. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, that's a hard question to answer. I mean, we, we live in the salmon capital of the world. And to be able to catch a uh, spring salmon with a quarter inch of fat on it, there's something special about that. That's true. Um, and I think there's also something special about eating a rainbow trout for breakfast, beer batter rainbow trout and a Budweiser uh, for breakfast at camp. There's something special about that. But really, if I had to pick my, my desert island, it would probably be uh, grouse. Grouse? Yeah. Grouse is good. Do you have a – what? what's the extent of your wild game been? You had deer at my house. Add deer at your house. Okay, so I was out at Devil's. There we go. I'm gonna man up. Here we go. So I was out there at Devil's Lake, and I got my buddy pulled out trout, and so we just jammed lemon on it and dill and. This is Devil's Lake, like Lincoln City. Yeah, yeah. And to foil those and cook those over the grill, that was made me think like, what am I, what am I doing, eating anything from a store? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it was the most. First off, some of that freshwater fish can like just stay fishy in no time at all. But you know, I mean, to pull it right up out of the water. And to, he cleaned it in a red hot second. Like we threw it on there, and it was amazing. And I was like, "This is the best thing I've ever had over a campfire in my whole life." Skillet, foil, the whole nine. And so I've been nuts for that. But like the um, the tenderloin, like you'd said, you know, where you just there was just hanging at the temperature of the garage, mm-hmm. you know, at the shop that you had. And it was cold, you know. And they pull that off, and they cut it into these little medallions, and drop it into the skillet with olive oil, salt, and pepper. Nothing else. The game was a seasoning that you could never replicate. There's nothing about it. Something, there's something live about that flavor. You know yeah. what I mean? I'll, I'll never forget that. I could taste it in my mouth right now. Yeah. You could have that every day. Oh, I could easily have oh. that every day and talk about lit and live for 100 years. Yeah. yeah. You know? That, in that particular deer compared, was to, compared to what you eat now, you know what I mean? Like, I got <laughs> the pizza that's over on that table over there, you know, compared to the meat that's on that thing. Yeah. yeah. No, I love it when people are like, I don't know how you could kill an animal, blah, 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 and eat that meat. You're a savage, and they're eating a pepperoni pizza. Yeah, yeah, it's I like, know. Where, where do you think, yeah. think that pepperoni like, came from? Like, yeah, this animal at least gets not, a rut, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you, yeah, they ask you, how could you kill that deer? It's like, well, I pulled the trigger. Yeah. But, yeah. The, it's uh, easy. You just don't lead him as much, right? For me, and answer my own question I asked for everybody, but um, deer is hands down probably, I, for some reason I, I like deer so much better than elk. I like elk, you know, I like hmm. moose. Never heard anybody say that. But I, for some reason for me, I love the taste of deer. And I've never, I mean, I, li- I like mule deer, I like whitetail, I like blacktail. Hands down, Sitka blacktail, um, which is usually southeast, south, southeastern Alaska is, is uh, my favorite of what's all it, of all. What's deer. so good about it? What, I mean, what, can you describe what's different about it? Well, their diet's different. Their yeah. diet's different. Really, they're a shorter deer. They're a, kind of a fatter deer because of the hard winters they have. They tend to. You can up. see one right over there. Yeah, it's sick, the smaller deer. Yeah, there's a couple of sick deer up there, but they have a lot more. F- they they tend to put on a lot more fat, getting ready for a harder winter than like what we have. But uh, I don't know, just the flavor of the meat is really good. Uh, the, the meat tends to be a, a real darker red um, than you typically see down here with like our local blacktail or if you go a little east into some of the, the mule deer or bench leg deer that we have. Uh, but hands down, I'd say cougar meat or mountain lion meat is is by far the best wild game I've ever God, had. I want some, I've never eaten it. a cat before. Yeah. Let's go somewhere where do we you, can uh, uh, hound hunt cougars. Do you eat the tongue? Uh, on your I deer? have had I don't I don't regularly har- harvest tongue but we have over the years we've had uh, 
caribou and elk and deer tongue. Um, and you know, the thing about tongue, like any organ, honestly, I almost prefer the heart over the back strap on any animal. Um, I'm not a big liver fan, but I've, ate, I've had a lot of liver. Um, but we use, when I worked in Alaska, we, we would have what was called organ night. And we would have like six or seven deer or caribou hearts and that many livers. We soak them in, in salt water for a couple of days and, and cut those up. And heart is, I think heart is better than probably any part of the whole animal, I think, for, for any animal that I've had. But tongue has, in my experience, and the way that we've prepared it, maybe we've done it wrong, but tongue has a really, really good flavor, but the texture is hard to get over. It was for me, but. So on, uh, on, the, on the Meat Eater show on Netflix. Um, a lot of organ meat. Well, he has, there's a two-part Idaho mule deer hunt. Um, that's one of my favorite two episodes. It's, it's awesome. But they, uh, his partner that's hunting with him, Ryan, um, gets a deer the first night, meets him back at camp, and he had to leave the deer there because he was way away, and he literally just brought the tongue back, and so they just boiled it and then put some seasoning on it, and they were just sitting there talking about how many hunters leave the tongue, and they were like, man, I, I want to get another deer just to have another tongue. Like, Really? Yeah, so... Uh, watching watching his episodes, he really goes into depth about everything. He's he's such a he's such a bun- purist. Is what he sounds like so, he's so so knowledgeable. He's written multiple books. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he's a great ambassador for 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 hunting. Do you want to hear somebody sport. defend hunting? He's got this. I think it's on YouTube where he defend. He's in a bookstore with his book, and there's some just anti hunter in there, on, and he just very eloquently. <laughs> Shut him down. Some anti-hunter. Oh shit. <laughs> no, no. Very well, elegantly that's good that he can just, do it without. Yeah, I mean, and it makes sense. It's not like he's you know right. being a jerk, and the guy just has no response, you know. And and uh, it, it's so easy to shut down hunting in your mind from an emotional standpoint, right? It's an emotional without thing. detail or fact, yeah. And that's yeah. the thing. Most anti- most anti-hunters are come at it from a complete emotional. It's a complete emotional standpoint. Um, and a lot of a lot of people that aren't pro hunting don't understand the benefits of hunting and where the money goes that for the people that that spend their money on hunting, because all that mo- the large majority of the money that goes into hunting and applying for permits goes into conservation and and um, which is what this place is about, correct? Right. Even the ammo, you Mr. Buy. Wendell. I mean everything. Yeah. 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 Here it is if you want to listen to it real quickly. Yeah. If you write anything on your we might get, It's only a minute. We might get kicked off on YouTube, which would be awesome. What? What was that me right there? Yeah. Um, Stephen, don't you think these animals you killed want to live as much as you or I do? In fact, isn't this just a rationalization for murdering innocent creatures? shoot innocent animals, animals that have beating hearts, they'll run from you simply because they want to live. They're not armed with copper bullets or lead bullets. I think you're not really asking a question, you're making a point, but I'm going to answer like a question. I would say that if you, <laughs> if you look at the grand spectrum of, of species on this planet, you treat humans like a species, you know, we're one. You'll, you'll not find many that, that don't prey on other kinds. People say generally, behaviorally and anatomically modern humans have been around for maybe 75,000 years. On this continent alone, people hunted for 15,000 years, notwithstanding the last couple hundred years. So to not hunt is in some way historically off the mark. Yeah. It's a new, to not hunt is a fairly new experiment 
in a human sense. To ask a wolf not to hunt anymore is an impossible question, you know? So if someone comes to me and says that they don't want human hunting, we don't want to hunt, I kind of am like, coming from what perspective? The life is sacred. Yeah, I, I know that life is sacred, but I think that I, what I admire is not, I admire the deer, but I admire the idea of deer more than the individual deer. And I can assure you that I know more about deer than you ever will. And I've learned that through hunting for them. And I probably care about them in a way that's deeper than something you're going to experience from having a removed perspective on it. But I really, beyond that, I can't really say that much because like all predatory animals with canine teeth, you know, we eat meat. And if you're going to eat it, I, if you're going to agree that some people can eat it and do eat it, I don't think it's, you can fairly point out a hunter and say that he's the vicious one because he chose to go out and harvest it himself. And that the other people who just have a other perspective on it or let it go on outside of their view are a-okay. I, I just think, it, I think it's ridiculous. But like I said, I don't think you're really asking the question. I, I understand what you're saying. And, and no, I wanted your answer. I want to thank you. Well, and what he says that it's the idea of deer is not the individual deer. Roger, Roger answered that question really well in episode number four of our podcast. Is he said, you can't keep animals from dying. You can't keep a deer from dying. That deer is going to die. We as humans are going to die, right? Yeah. But um, what you can protect is their habitat. And as hunters and as animal conservation people, that's what we do. We protect the habitat. Uh, go to England well, and book we, we, a we public sp- land hunt. We spend the money. Yeah. Well, and, and I think the reality is, too, is a lot of people, most people that are against hunting, they think like we would if you and I were out in a field hanging out um, with a bunch of chicks and you get shot. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be really upset, and so are the so are the chicks, right? Um, and a lot of people try to put that like they try to compare human life to animal life from that perspective. And mm-hmm. I can tell you firsthand. I mean, I think unless you're unless you're dealing with um, maybe you know chimpanzees or some some advanced uh, primate f- form of primate, animals don't have that perspective on life. I mean, I've shot deer and had the other deer watch that deer lay down and die and go right back to eating. Um, so uh, it's not a moral and imperative. several yeah. things. So it's not, it doesn't have the emotional impact on the animal that, um, that a lot of people think that it does. And that's like, mm-hmm. that's their biggest hang up and the biggest thing a lot of people can't, can't get over. It's like, how could you murder animals when they're just trying to live their life? They don't understand that animals don't have the psychological or emotional <laughs> understanding of life and death and like we, they have the fight or flight instinct, but they don't have the emotional understanding of life and death like survival. like we do. And Absent the image the that a lot of people have of hunters of that redneck Billy Bob that goes out and poaches those people do exist, and nobody hates those people more than ethical hunters. Then, yeah, correct. Then right? law abiding. And hunter. the percentage of those people are half of one percent mm-hmm. of the hunting community. Yeah, wasteful people. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had another great point. Uh, that I was going to try to wrap this uh, on. What a great podcast. Business, personal development, hunting. 
Um, 32 gigs of uh, memory. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's been good. But no, seriously, let's have it. Exactly. Oh, I was going to say, uh, Puget Sound Spotted Prawns is another great. Have you ever guys ever shrimped for Puget Sound? Sp- oh, we'll do it next spring. We just missed it. They're the, I mean, you can eat them fresh. Any chance to go to Puget Sound, though? Really, yeah, honestly, or the Hood River and go up to the. Uh, hood, well, hood, uh, we started uh, this. We started this. Pod- <laughs> yeah. We started this podcast on a toast. Let's end it on a toast. Uh, to good friends, future good hunting friends. buddies, Ryan. Come on, Ryan. Um, oh, uh, thank you for coming on. I don't know if this lived up to your expectation. Uh, I hope it lived up to your expectations. Yeah, because you got you got like a deep dive in the long term care, which can be a well. I tell a you gray what, gray and weird sadness. We'll, we'll see how many views it gets. There's, it's going to get a lot. There's a lot of similarities between what your industry and our industry, but there's a lot of similarities between your industry and every industry. Right. These are struggles and. Um, uh, management styles and techniques that people struggle with every day and I really appreciated your answer about personal development right but I guarantee you the things you said there's going to be somebody that's listening to this in their industry in the background while they're working and they're going to take something out of what you said on this podcast and they're going to apply it to what they're doing and and I think that's the whole purpose of of this podcast so uh, all right uh, on that note thank you Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Uh, We'll see you next time. We're out. Dude. That was fun. That was fun. Listen, I know.